everybody. Good evening. Um, hope you're uh, excited for some Merge Worlds today. I am. So hopefully we will uh, be having ourselves some good times. I have a full brand new fresh jug of ice cold chocolate milk. So we know this is going to be a successful evening. I will pour some as we discuss. Um, for those of you who may not have been here before, Merge Worlds is... A Dungeons and Dragons story campaign that I've been writing and running uh, from one group to the next for close to 30 years at this point. Um, I've been coming on here and sharing that story for over a year now. I'm going to say there. We're on episode, what, 44? Minimum two to three hours per episode. We're 120 plus hours of story. I'll be honest, mind boggling. Never thought it was going to take this long. I have so much more to go. Um, but I appreciate you coming by and, uh, letting me share some of my tale with you. Um, I'll do just a real brief recap as always. Um, and then we'll jump into the story. But before I do, thank you very much for coming. If you have a good time today, please remember to click the like button, whether you're here today or listening to this down the road. Um, as well as, um, if you're new here, to be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're listening to this on iTunes and Spotify, uh, it would be awesome if you'd follow or subscribe on the uh, uh, podcast network of your choice. Uh, and if you want to throw a review on there, that would be awesome. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, yeah, I appreciate everybody giving me the chance to share this uh, tale, which is probably the biggest achievement I've done in my life, putting this all together, and I'm uh, pretty proud of it. And I feel it's going well today. Today. So I will tell you all that this chapter, this section of the story that we've been going through, um, was the hardest thing for me to ever DM. To DM the story in a way that broke up all the characters. To... Um, create a story for each character that would have an impact on them uh, while also creating an adventure that was kind of more suited to their talents um, was a bit bit different than anything I'd ever done. And the jumping back and forth, uh, which can be a little nerve-wracking here in the story, uh, was even more so in person. So uh, first couple of, uh, times I DM'd it, things changed a bit to make it a little easier down the road. But uh, hopefully... Story comes across well, anyways. Like I said, like I said this in a previous episode, I think this part of the story is actually coming across better in the telling. Uh, it was easier to tell the story than it was to DM it. Although we had a good time with it, um, and this chapter sets up some very, very important stuff for the future. So I'm excited for that. All right. So um, welcome to April. I know this is April Fool's Day. I don't play that. Uh, there are not going to be any joke or fake stuff in the story today. I'm not going to mess with that. I understand that many, many people will probably listen to this after April 1st. I don't want to leave that kind of confusion. So uh, there will be no April Fool's jokes on the stream today. Uh, I can assure you of that. But let's do a recap. <laughs> so the four main heroes are each dealing with um, a dilemma, a storyline of their own. They're all involved in their own issue at this point. Dandy... Um, was sent a message from One-Eye, who is the head of the Thieves' Guild of Paxiwal, or was before the it, the Thieves' Guilds kind of went to war, 
asking her to come to a, a little town kind of in the middle of nowhere, which she did. And her and her husband, Michael, have been there pretending that they're looking for a place to live and looking for work um, while trying to investigate what what's going on in that town, what's odd because something is. The end of last episode, they had snuck into the mayor's home. Uh, Sinestro the Third was his last name, and because uh, I'm subtle, um, and he, they went in there and they're investigating him because they thought that he was a little bit suspicious for some reason. Um, well, in the, in the home, he and another man showed up from it and then left in the middle of the night, well after curfew. So they were sneaking to follow them. Um, when they were attacked by some type of man creature, which we'll get into a little more detail today. Artemis had gone to one of the towns of Serenity because there was a sickness, if not plague, that was there. And she and the paladin Weston, along with the Knights of Serenity, Quan Seamus, um, and Artemis's second-in-command, Miasha, uh, um, were all trying to find the source of it. They found that there was a coven of clerics there, of the god of plague and pestilence. Um, and they've managed to terminate two of them. They believe there's at least one more. Um, and so they were, they realized that two people from the town were missing. An elven artist and toy maker had gone north to one town and a human leather worker had gone uh, to the southwest to Moonbrook, which is the main of the towns outside of the actual kingdom of Serenity itself. So she was sending half their forces north, and Artemis was taking the other half, and they were going to rush towards Moonbrook to try to find out. They don't know if one or both of them is what they're looking for, but they're going to try. So they were ready to head out towards Moonbrook. Mercy had, um, after visiting the, the local mines in her area, had, was called back there due to some type of an incident. She arrived to find out that some type of creatures were attacking uh they dug the miners had found some type of underground chamber that existed, a man-made chamber, by the way, not natural. And uh, once inside, many of them were attacked and destroyed. Mercy led uh, some of her people along with her father, who happens to be visiting, who's a knight of the light, and his forces are there. And they made their way inside, fought off the creature things, which were, I believe I said trolls, if you remember. Um, and they went into the room, and there was a sarcophagus-looking thing. And the sarcophagus did not look like it fit in the room. Like, the room was designed with a certain aesthetic. Um, and the big sarcophagus thing really looked like it was not supposed to be there. Mercy, poking and prodding, finally touches it, and there's a shock wave, and she's flung backwards against the wall and knocks her unconscious. She comes back out, metals even in her armor's cracked. She hit it so hard. Um, making her way over to that, um, the sarcophagus had split and fell, and there was something inside, but I did not say what it was. As she was calling for help, uh, by help I mean sending people to back to the Kingdom of Serenity, saying we need mages and clerics to deal with this, a messenger arrived from her border saying that an ambassador from the Empire of Oromon had arrived wanting to speak with her, and Oromon has been their enemy for a very long time. And then the last one is Darsh, who the Minotaur way off to the south uh, in the oceans. Uh, uh, pirates had been attacking not only his island, but ships uh, in the waters near of that. 
both human and uh, Minotaur itself, including his uh, older ship, the Morgenstern, on his new, much bigger, much better Chimera. They had just loaded up and were heading out again in search of these pirates and to basically uh, smite them, for lack of a better word. And they were heading out for that. So that's kind of where we left off. So we're going to continue at that point. If you have questions about the story, feel free to throw them in chat. As long as it doesn't ruin the story, I'm happy to go ahead and answer those as much as I possibly can. Okay. So. Oh, and then, of course, I forgot the big overarching story. For the last couple of weeks, every seven days, they're all pulled into what appears to be a dream together um, where something seems to be searching or want something they have. And in each one, uh, something different has happened and they've had to fight to keep it away. We'll get more into that today, I promise. So, we're going to start with kind of where we left off, and that's going to be Mercy. So, looking down into the sarcophagus, she's Aguar, who's the, the head of the mines, has now kind of come down there. He's been escorted down. Everybody's getting ready for them to take off back to the border to deal with the uh, Oromon situation. But she wants our Egor to see what's going on. And she shows him. And inside of the sarcophagus um, is a set of armor. Unlike anything she's ever seen before. Um, it, it has a very Nordic feel to it, if you will. Oddly enough, I, I, I made this years ago. Even though I'm playing Serenity. Uh, I'm playing streaming right now. I'm streaming Skyrim. Completely coincidental. I designed this years ago. Uh, but a very Nordic style of armor. Um, and it looks very old. There's nothing inside of it. Um, but the way that it's sitting, it's kind of sitting with its hands like this, almost like bowl-shaped. Like, not flat or anything like this. Its hands are bowl-shaped, and in its hand is some kind of, it would be described as a scepter. A little bit large, but a long scepter. And it is floating several inches above it, like right in the groove of where that thing is, floating above the body in the center of the sarcophagus. It is pulsating with the shifting colors. Kind of like my Dungeon Dragons dice over there. It'll go like blue, but it's just a very slow pulsating. Um, but there's a feeling of warmth coming off it. Not like hot fire, but if you get close, it's, you know, like from a distance, you can feel the warmth from a heater or heat vent kind of thing. Um, she advises Aguar that until she's able to return and or until the, the uh, mages of Serenity clear it, she doesn't want anyone down in here. Uh, that she will personally see to lost wages from anyone who's losing money in the mines being shut. But until further notice, she's shutting it down. Uh, she can't take any chances. In case there's more of this down there, she has to get clearance from the mages first. Uh, at first, he's like, no, you don't have to do that. She goes, no, this is, this is what's going to happen. I'm shutting you down. At no point do I want anyone to think you're doing this. I'm shutting the mines down. Everyone will be paid their regular pay. And I'll see that you do not lose wages either. So... There's that. But then, uh, but she goes, until that, once we all leave out of here, she goes, I'm going to leave a couple uh, of my warriors here at the gate. No one goes into the mines other than the mages. Uh, even if the clerics arrive, I don't want them down in there until the mages arrive. She goes, this looks way too magic-y for me. This is outside my area of expertise. I'm calling in the people that know. She then heads back up. Edward wishes well. She'll, he, of course, agrees to everything. Um, and then she hops on the horse where her father and Seth are already waiting, and their horses, and they begin the trek back 
to the border garrison, you could call it, or base thing where it is, tower uh, of her defense there, where the uh, ambassador is waiting. But again, as I mentioned, that's like a one and a half, two day trip. It's not short. They have a lot of land. It's a good size. But they start heading that way. Um, Artemis also booking it towards Moonbrook. At full speed, it's still going to take at least a day to get there. And some of the people in this group, like Artemis and uh, Miasha stayed behind, but uh, Artemis and a couple of the other clerics that Artemis brought with her are not as much into the heavy, hardcore pressing. So there is a bit of a slowness. Unfortunately, everybody has to wait on them, but they're not going to try to jump into this plague situation. If there is a, a cleric there, um, they sure as heck don't want to run in there without their most powerful healer. So it's taking them some time. She should arrive in Moonbrook. Oh, right around the same time Mercy should hit the border. Yay for sinking timelines. But Dandy's in the middle of something right now. Because Dandy was fighting some type of cat person. Let's talk about that. The cat person itself stands probably about six to half, six to half feet tall. Right there. Um, it's fur. Black, covers its entire body. Uh, black, like a panther. In fact, its face is very panther-like. Uh, if not slightly large, even for the body. The head means just a smidge too big for the body. But it's incredibly muscular. And it is wearing the basics. Of, it's wearing some type of clothing. It's not you know, fully in a suit and tie or anything. But it does definitely have stuff. It has gear. And you can see that it has weapons. Uh, it had spoke to them. And you shouldn't have come. Um, but at the same time, you know, it knows how to speak, but it, it's clearly armed and knows what it's doing. But it's they can see the talons on the end of its fingers as well, and the thing is fast. Uh, and then before they have a chance to even say anything, it just comes in on the attack. Uh, so Dandy and Michael immediately are in combat. Um, this thing that they're fighting is probably one of those agile things that Dandy's had to fight. It's fast, and it's uh, very, very... Again, I'm going to say agile, but dexterous in as much that uh, both she and Michael are having a hard time landing blows on it. Um, it's doing better than sh than they are. Um, they are scoring some hits, of course. Um, and Menandra, of course, uh, Michael's spear, who senses undead, clearly notifying him, whatever this is, is not undead. And they're like, yeah, I, I kind of guessed that. Um, so their next job Stop, uh, jump immediately is to a were-creature. Being a cat, were-panther is what they're assuming. They were correct. And in case you didn't know that, yes. There are many different were-creatures in Dungeons & Dragons. So they're fighting a were-panther. Dandy, intelligently enough, switches immediately to her silver daggers. We've talked about this. Dandy has two silver daggers. And uh, Menanda herself is a magical artifact weapon of such that there's very few monsters it wouldn't affect. So, where a creature, if, if it's a creature that has to be a special type of weapon to hit it, Menander pretty much always counts. Um, the answer to your question, monster, is going to be fall damage from mobs. Slime block. Um, but there's that. So, they're in combat. And the fight is more diving and dexterous moves and moving out of the way and dodging and blocking than it is attacking. Um, this is what I almost call my first real rogue fight. Um, there's been kind of a couple. When Dandy fought the ninja Michael in the her trial back in the uh, stones when they're trying to gather all of the 
of Larian Star Wars. They, uh, that was probably the very first real rogue where they're bouncing, jump on the poles and the pedestals and using a lot of ranged weapons and such. Um, but this is the first you know, kind of up-close melee. And as much as Dandy hates to admit it to herself, her biggest liability is Michael. Because um, while he's very dexterous and very, for a human and such, he still can't keep up with Dandy, even in the slightest, or the Panther. Uh, and the Panther scoring hits on him much easier. Now, his abilities very often will be enhanced, like his strength, when he merges with Menandra. But Menandra only work. I mean, those abilities only work against undead. He can't just merge with her to fight anything. And that's something we hadn't really discussed previously in the story, but that's kind of how it works. I mean, it still counts as a powerful weapon, and it can talk to her, and it has some basic abilities. But when it comes to, like, the, him merging and his hair goes a different color, and he, like, literally goes power undead, that only works when facing some form of undead. Um, just kind of the magic of how Menander works. It's, it's one big limitation. So... Michael's the issue. Uh, Dandy can do a good job. She's not taking hardly any hits, if any, at this point, dodging everything. The payment. She's actually faster than him. But when it can't get her, it starts targeting Michael, which now she's trying to jump in to help protect him. Uh, which, again, you may think, oh, Dandy being the little tiny, barely three-foot-tall little kinder girl is literally one of the more whoop-ass characters of this group when she really needs to be. Um, and so she's in there with her... Uh, Daggers, because her hoop pack's not going to do anything. Uh, and she's knife fighting with this thing. Basically knife fighting against this thing's claws. Um, but, as would be expected, well, she may not be able to get, he may not be able to get hits on She He does score several big hits on Michael. And uh, finally, at one point, like right across his neck and face, he gets claw marks and he goes flying backwards, like flips and Menander goes out of his hands. And he's got like, just blood starts kind of coming out of his cheek and his neck a little bit. Like not enough to kill him, but a pretty serious wound. Um, and he's flipped out and he's on the ground kind of staggering with his neck. And Dandy has to try to put herself between... Michael and this Were Panther in order to protect him, which now means she can't be all dodgy and stuff. She's forced into melee. Um, so then it switched to an actual fight on fight. And in this, the Were Panther's strength and uh, natural weapons uh, are a little bit better than Dandy. You know, she can't, she's now trying to block and parry and such with these knives. And his, the, the Were Panther's strength is drastically stronger than hers. And it starts to look not too good for our friend Dandy. But then, about that time, something else happened. Kind of rushing from rushing in from off camera, I guess you could say, but really out of the point of view, comes another figure. This one wielding a uh, pretty long sword itself comes in, um, and both dandy. And the Panther have to jump back because neither of them, it's very easy, neither of them expected this. And it comes in swinging weapons at both of them. So now both of them are like, okay, well now it's a three on three fight. And the person there is clearly human, but they're dressed all in, like not ninja black, but they're dressed in black and they are wearing a mask kind of around here. Um, and he's got like the top mask on too, so just like ninja. And they're going in, but it's dark out. You can't see a lot of things, but they're in there. And as the thing rushes in, it almost feels like the panther feels like, oh, I've got some backup here. 
because the thing appears to kind of go at Dandy first. So the panther jumping in as well is like, okay, I'll deal with this later, and jumps in, in the pan uh, towards Dandy as well. But uh, it's at that time that the new figure completely switches up and focuses directly on the panther. Now Dandy's thrown. She's like, well, who are you helping? Like, what if I go to help now and you switch on me again? Like, I, And she's saying this while she's fighting. She's like, she goes, well, now what am I supposed to do? I can't trust you or this thing. And the panther yells. He's like, yeah, yeah, I already heard growl, growl. You're a horrible person. But let me, I'm trying to deal with this other guy down there. Just the whole fight. Uh, the other thing, uh, like I said, he has a, a long sword, but it's somewhat curved. Like, not exactly a scimitar. It's kind of a custom design uh, for this character specifically. But when it's... Um, Oh, somebody leave a like. Hey, I appreciate it, Terry. Thanks for coming by. Um, when it hits the panther, the panther hisses when it gets a good cut on him because clearly the glimmer, you can tell that it's a silver-bladed weapon as well. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it as well, sir. Everybody pop in and say hello. Thank you. <laughs> um, but after a couple moments of this against both of them, and Michael's now getting back up on his feet. He's recovering a little bit. He had a potion of healing. He quaffed a little bit of that. So he's getting back in fight. He see, grabs him. The panther decides, this is not for me. And turns and begins to flee. Now, at first, both Dandy and Michael want to pursue, but they've got to worry about this other person. And the panther starts running like on all fours kind of thing. And it's really fast. And within an instant, Dandy's like, there's no way I'm going to catch up to that thing. It's just way faster than me. So Michael kind of comes back to her side with Menander out. And Dandy's like, it's about time. I thought I was going to be waiting forever. Lazy. You're not going to make me do all this all by myself? And Michael's a little taken back. Dandy's never really talked to him like that before. And Michael's like, I'm sorry. And that's why she goes, Shh, I'm talking to him. <laughs> and, and the figure turns, of course. And, and of course, through the slit, you can see his eye and the eye patch. And sure enough, he pulls the mask off and it's one eye. The uh, person that sent that message for help. Dandy, like, very quickly realized who it was and the, the feint on the attack and was trying to play along. Cause, and that's what the young lady playing the character was like. She goes, I'm going to play along like I'm not sure who it is. But, sure enough, it is one eye. And he, with his very devilish smile, looks at both of them and goes, come, we have to get off the streets before, it, before, he, before he brings back help. And they're like, okay. And they kind of go rushing off, kind of back towards the mayor's area, but actually more to a little bit outside of town. Um, so they're, they're, that's where they're heading out. And then we have Darsh. Who's on a boat? Darsh, in this early part of the adventure, really had the least to do of everybody. Because everything he's looking to do, it's mostly him on a boat, traveling for days at a time. Uh, and it's going to take several days for him to get to where he needs to be to start dealing with this pirate situation. Uh, and I made that clear to, to the person playing Darsh early on that early parts of this adventure, Darsh will be the one who sees a little bit least of the action just by nature of the type of adventure he has to have in this scenario. Um, but that it will pick up later and she was fine with that. Because she's also the same young lady who plays Artemis who probably had the most in-depth of all three of these or all four of them. Uh, 
Artemis had the most actual to do. Because Artemis is always the healer, you know, while she's involved and she helps. Even with the um, Draven quest back in the day when they were traveling with Dandy and Michael and the tribals and such, she was still the healer. You know, I mean, she, there wasn't a whole lot for her to figure out and do other than to try to, you know, steal from Darkmoor. Uh, but in this one, it's really her coming up with, she has people that are there that are all looking to her for leadership. Um, and while she's led the temple, she's never had to deal in this type of thing. So it was a nice change for Artemis to get to actually lead people in a cause away from the temple with, uh, actual cause and effect scenarios. You know, she's putting other people's lives in danger potentially. And her, if she makes the wrong decision, uh, lives could be lost. So, uh, she really enjoyed her section of it. And we got a lot of really funny, like the spells and wells. There was a lot of little funny, uh, I guess you could call uh, running gags that from this point, this adventure on was used to make fun of Artemis. I did not make, but in a fun way to kind of remember that time, the silly thing. I'm just like mercy gets the, I like stairs thing a lot. Spells and wells became a, a regular thing. Sometimes in the adventure, they tease like, what are you going to go down? You just slide down the well and cast a spell. She's like, shut up. After they all heard about it. Um, so there's that. Uh, what else is next? So, Darsh is traveling again for several days. Uh, and again, like I said, all these things are normally, all the storylines sync up um, really on the, I guess you could say the seventh day. So, we're going to jump into uh, Mercy next. We're jumping to Mercy next. And I have to apologize. I have each person's section written out, but I jump back and forth, not always in the same places I'm doing it here. So that kind of throw gets thrown off a little bit. Um, but Mercy arrives again somewhat a little bit later with the rest of her men uh, and her father and Seth. And they arrive at the Garrison. And, and there's really no signs of Oramon other than uh, like at, at the game. But once she gets to the tower about a thousand yards down towards more of the, of the valley, she can see that there's a relatively large tent and there's about a hundred Oromanian uh, warriors, knights, soldiers, whatever you call them, uh, kind of camped there, hanging out. Um, Mercy arrives and gets an, an update and uh, there's not much else to tell. Once they were, they made themselves known, they said they're happy to wait for Mercy however long it takes because it's convenient for her. And they went to the tent, set up their little bit of camp. They're literally feet outside of their border, you know. They they didn't cross the border, but they're right there waiting. So Mercy, uh, very quickly, um, takes a few minutes to refresh herself, day and a half riding, you know, uh, change into some nicer clothes. She's still pretty sore from the issue at the, at the, um, the mine, because remember, her shoulder got dislocated, get popped in, and all of these guys carry a couple healing potions at this point. That's something that Artemis' temple um, will actually actually starts to make, not in a horrendous amount, you know, they don't have unlimited access, um, because the, the thought is that they're given out to different people, and they're also used on people who are legitimately sick and injured when clerics can't always be there to heal them, you know, uh, plus they want to have some for the warriors and commanders, some on the front in case they get attacked like Ormond, things of that nature, um, all of Mercy's knights always have a couple, uh, but the person who makes a lot of those, who's kind of in charge of that, is Misha, um, and I don't remember if you remember... Misha, but she was the young lady who, Misha Meadows, who was 
uh, the third person to get the dream from the god of healing when the night that Artemis got that dream saying, go up north and find this evil, and that's how Serenity was founded. Lucas was the other one, and Lucas became her protector on that. And Misha kind of was there as well. And Misha was helpful. She was a relatively low-level cleric of healing. She was loyal. She was friendly. She helped. But she really didn't have that defining moment. Like, Lucas was there to protect Artemis and did so several times in life-saving ways and has many times since. Uh, Artemis obviously created the Temple of Serenity and built upon that. She was given the vision of the waters underneath and all that. And uh, But Misha really didn't have anything. And Misha was kind of like, she, she kind of, I guess you'd say, bummed out at some times. Because she was like, well, you know, I, I, why was why me? I didn't do anything. Why am I here? Um, and, you know, her she's one of those people that's been there since the beginning. So Artemis and her have been friends for several years at this point. And she's one of the only people that knows about the hidden lake underneath of the temple uh, that is the source of the temple's power. Um, but Artemis has always said to her that, you know, maybe your time hasn't come yet. You were sent here. Well, you're still here. Maybe you're here for a reason that hasn't been revealed yet. Uh, so Misha is, is one who's very much into the creation of potions and elixirs. Not the mage style, but the cleric style. And they're very different. Healing, cure from poisons, things of that nature. The cures, the anti-disease. Uh, she works with a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, and she's also started beginning um, looking into uh, potentially starting to make scrolls. Where she's not going to make them himself, but she's kind of in charge of that section of the temple. Uh, where they're going to start making spell scrolls um, and like protection from evil, protection from the type of scrolls and such that clerics would make. Because cleric and mage were very, very different types of spells when I did this. New D&D, not so much. But, and I digress. She, I meant that, so Mercy had some healing potions, she was able to drink that, but she's still really, really bruised. Her shoulders and on her back where she hit the wall where the metal cracked. And so she's not wearing her normal armor, but she does have some decent clothing with her. You know, she can put on to look official. Um, and they, she she gives word to one of her one of her people. And Seth, specifically, is going to go down and meet Yoram and bring him and his contingent up. Not all hundred of them, you know. It's not how it's going to work. Like, they know that. But he understands he's probably going to want to have a couple with him, and that's to be expected. So, while Mercy's prepping, um, it's, it's a pretty nice day out. It's not too windy. Uh, a small tent is set up outside. Uh, more like Not like a full enclosed tent, but just the top part of the tent. The table, some chairs underneath. Uh, she does not want them inside the building or seeing anything more than they have to, if you know what I mean. They would rather them not get a lot good look at exactly what the defenses look like. So this is being set up outside the gate. And sure enough, by the time Seth gets down there, because uh, it's not that far, but when he goes down to meet them, they're already standing out there ready to go. They see the tent being put up. They can figure that something's happening. Obviously, you're not going to put a tent up if you're planning on attacking the hundred people in front of you. So they assume by the time he's there, the ambassador is ready. And he and his two guards come up to uh, this border tower. One of the, It's the main border tower, but the, the tower that Mercy's at. She's already standing, not sitting though, she's standing. She waits for the ambassador to arrive, uh, greets him standing, and she, she's very professional about it. She already wants to squish this dude, but she's very professional about it. Sure enough, uh, he, he takes a seat before she does. And she, they sit down. The two guards are 
uh, Ormanian elites. We've talked about them. Elites are specialty trained warriors. They're the best warriors that Ormond has. They're always in pairs of two and they never talk. Um, they just look like twins. Rarely are they even different sizes. They're almost always... Literally, it's like there's one of them and the rest are clones. I guarantee you these are not clones. I'm just using that as an example. So the ambassador arrives and he uh, introduces himself as Ambassador Travius Otherius. And I have to mention, we've, I've mentioned this before, Oromon is very Roman-like in its design, the way I've designed Oromon. So, so you'll, you'll find a lot of uh, that kind of speech and names and even some of the weapons and stuff. Like a lot of the generals is that we use a gladius, which is a classic Roman sword. So you'll, you'll see a lot of that from Ormon. The other hundred soldiers are seated down. The ambassador legitimately looks like he's really not concerned for his safety. Um, Mercy's peacefulness uh, may have already, uh, you know, kind of let him know that I, as long as I don't do anything to cross the line, she's too nice of a person to do anything to me. She's not going to do that. But he arrives and, and they, they begin just kind of chatting. Now, I believe I'd mentioned earlier that uh, Mercy's uh, people had, you know, they'd go across the border and spy, just like I'm sure Oromon does. Um, and Mercy was starting the beginnings of building a fort here, um, which obviously they can see that much just by the, what's been built here already. But they discovered that Oromon, several miles in, was building a fort itself. Um, and that's something that Mercy knows going into this. So, Travius states that he's been sent on behalf of the Empire, never actually says the Emperor, but on behalf of the Empire to discuss potential border issues with Serendi. He states that they, he comes with full authority of the Empire and is authorized to make any type of agreement, deal, and or treaty on behalf of them. Um, it's clear the man has high rank. I mean, that's just as it is. Not everybody gets two elites walking around with him as bodyguards. Uh, but he says that there's several issues that they'd like to, that they'd like to discuss, such as border issues, potential trade agreements, extradition issues, and just overall treaties. Um... Now, if you remember early on in this chapter, I mentioned that the re resistance or rebellion in Ormond that's trying to, you know, take it back from the empire, if you will, uh, has been smuggling people out into Serenity, and Serenity's like a, a doorstop. Once they hit there, then they either stay and live in Serenity, or Mercy makes sure they're given some money, some supplies, and allowed to, to carry on. Many people just want to get as far away from Ormond as they can. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, it's it's a, a way of former slaves and prisoners and just anybody whose life is in danger because they've spoken up against the Empire. So when he starts speaking of extradition issue, uh, Mercy gets very, very, like, she, on edge at that point. She doesn't really say anything, but like, just seeing the, the, young, the young lady playing Mercy, was like, hmm? Like, like, huh? Like, you know. Um, Mercy, of course, also says, well, um, well, I I'm surprised uh, to hear from, you know, as long as it's been, from, uh, we've been here from Ormond now, but uh, definitely she's willing to talk 
Uh, she says, and uh, she has some things she'd like to speak to him about well, such as the new fort that they're building a few miles in so-and-so direction. And he's a little, like, hmm? Like, he's, you can see he's caught off guard for just a second in a, how do you know? And then regains himself, and he's like, that's just a small, small, it's obviously not going to be a full-size keep or anything like that. It's purely just a border guard, to not, not so much to protect against you, again, we're looking to make friends, allies with you. There's no reason we should consider continue hostilities. It's actually more for your protection. And Mercy's like, how is it for my protection? He's like, well, you see, sadly, sadly, um, most of the troubles between Serenity and Ormond were purely misunderstandings. And that the Empire's come to learn that. And they've come to understand that. You know what? We took things hasty. We marched in here. Purely not understanding Serenity's goal. We, originally, the thought was they were a threat on our borders. They were going to come in. It was more of a offensive-defensive maneuver, but we realized we acted too hastily. We jumped to conclusions we shouldn't have, and that is what's hurt this friendship. And that's why we wanted to be the first one to come out here and, and, and give that olive branch to stretch out that hand in friendship so we can kind of chat. Um, he says that plus for defense, he you know, say that unfortunately it is believed that you know, many, uh, as large as, as an empire as Oromon is, uh, of course, there will always be criminals and uh, malcontents and that um, these people will be fleeing justice and it's afraid that they may flee. These dangerous criminals might even try to flee towards serenity and to protect their neighbors and to make sure that these justice, uh, these people don't escape justice, the border guard there is really just to protect the border from criminals escaping, not really as a way of defending against serenity. Complete faith that serenity would never attack the empire. And he doesn't say it, but kind of like the, you wouldn't dare, you know, because the empire is like 20 times the size of serenity. If all of its military, they were willing to not defend any of their other borders, and they just marched up here. There's not a thing in the world Serenity could do to stop them. They're just horrendously huge military. They almost took out the southern kingdoms, which is multiple kingdoms that are all bigger than Serenity. Um, so like, it's like, we're not afraid you're going to come across our border, but we don't want you to have to deal with these people, you know, these criminals, uh, dangerous criminals. We would never want them to be unleashed on your populace because we didn't try hard enough to, to make sure that they saw justice. And, and the guy, the young lady, both of the young ladies that play these, all these characters uh, kept referring to this guy off camera as smarmy. That was the word that he kept, oh, he's so smarmy. And the way I talked, the way he talked as much like I'm talking, we would never want that. And they're like, he's so smarmy. Mercy's like, I just want to, I just want to thump him over the head with my morning star right now. I'm like, do you do that? She's like, no. I said, I want to, but I don't. I'm like, okay, I'm just saying, you gotta let me know. Um, um, but while he's saying this and he's saying the malcontents and criminals and so on, he does say one thing that definitely catches her attention in a bit more of a concerned ways. She says, and to, and, to, and to emphasize how much seriously we take this threat, we want you to know that very recently, one of the major leaders of this criminal organization that has been terrorizing our good empire has recently been found and executed for their crimes. He doesn't give the name of who it is, 
Mercy doesn't want to ask for fear that she draws attention that she may know who they are. But this concerns Mercy because, well, the only leader of the rebellion that she really knows of uh, was Tiara, who's actually the first wife of the emperor. Um, whether or not she was ever found out to be a part of that or not, Mercy's never been able to find out. Um, no information she can get, well, little information she can get out of the rebellion and working. Um, the, the Tiara hasn't been seen in months. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean something bad's happened. She never popped out that publicly that much even before that. Um, but even with the low-level ranked people, she doesn't ever bring Tiara up unless they mention her first. Because, I mean, like any organization, a lot of the low-level people may not know Tiara's involved, right? Because if they do get captured, you don't want them to be tortured and give that up, right? So she's careful not to give that out to many people either. Um, if the other person mentions it, then she'll be like, okay, well, now it can be discussed. There's only been a very few small meetings between her and the rebellion uh, when this all started. And at this point, it's almost all automated. People show up uh, with specific, you know, people bring them to the border, deliver them to the, to the Serenity guards. Serenity brings them in the rest of the way. Re rebels go back home, hopefully to get more people. So... He starts talking, he's going on and on about things like uh, maybe trade between the kingdoms. We have many different uh, business avenues that you might be able to benefit from. Everything from food to weapons to whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. Trying to come across like, we'll, we'll, we'll sell you weapons. We obviously don't want to, we're not worried, we don't want to be your enemy. Why would we arm you for our enemy? That kind of stuff. Um, and uh, I'm going to be honest, Mercy, uh, Mercy didn't take well to this. I had different notes down based on how she acted. Like if she was, she could fake that she was interested, try to get more information out of him. Um, you know, she could just squish his head. I mean, I had tried to have, but she was just a jerk. Like she was, she was just like, she goes, well, you know, I mean, you know, just her retorts were, were just things that would make this guy mad. Like she was still trying to talk professionally. She wasn't blatantly saying like, your empire is trash, but she was saying things that would imply they're trash. And it was very roundabout things, and the guy just kept getting heated, and he was having a harder time staying more profe staying professional about this. Um, and of course, his two elites are standing behind him, and Seth and Mercy's dad are standing behind him. And that's a little disconcerting. You could tell that they, when they sat down and they saw a knight of the light, that's not what they wanted to see either. Because again, if Serenity is an issue for them, the last thing they want is them to be hooked up with a huge major knighthood. Everybody knows about the Knights of the Light now. They're a huge force in this section of Merged World. Um, and they're of good. I mean, that's how that works. Uh, so that's one of those things that Ormond has to know about them. Not going to be happy to see them hanging out there. They're not going to know the relationship between Mercy and her dad, unless they looked a little alike, which we never discussed. Um, but it's definitely something they, that they're not going to be happy to see. So, Mercy, of course, what she did decide to do is say, well, I'm sure we can work some Here's what I'd like. And the things she named, I'll be honest, I don't remember exactly what they were, but she named things that there was no way they were going to do that. Well, we'd like, uh, you know, sure, well, we don't have slavery, so we'll need you to get rid of that. And we'll need you, you know, we'll need you to do all these kind of things. And just start naming off all the stuff that there's no way the Empire was going to do. And goes, so you go back and you tell your emperor, that uh, we'd be happy to speak with him on these issues. As soon as he takes care of these few things, then, uh, yeah, we'd be happy to do that. And, of course, it's things that they could never, they're never going to do. You know. And so uh, it, it very ends badly. Uh, he, the guy stands up in a bit of a huff. 
Um, and uh, everybody's just kind of hanging out there, hands on weapon, except Mercy, who has no weapon there, because remember, she can magically pop hers into her hand whenever she needs, so she doesn't have to have it with her. Um, he, uh, he clearly is not happy, um, and he's like, well, I will be sure to give your message to the Emperor. And she said something like, please do, and say, I look forward to seeing him again sometime. And she said it in a really native way. He's like, mm. and, and the guy excused himself. And within 20, 30 minutes, the t their tent's packed up, and they're starting to head back towards Oramon. They're, they're obviously leaving. They're not, were they here for fact-finding? Were they here to be legitimate? It's hard to know at this point. Mercy's not sure, but uh, she decides that her and her father and Seth uh, or her and her father are going to head back towards Serenity at this point, by way of the mines first. Um, and they're going to leave Seth here with pretty much the majority of the rest of the knights that are warriors of hers that she has. She says, at this point, I'm not comfortable knowing that even if they're leaving, that's still more than I'd like. I'm leaving him here, and with, as soon as we can get back to Serenity, I'm going to be sending more out this way, so be prepared to have an increase in the amount of people here, at least on the short term, till we know what's happening. So, of course, they... She stays there. She rests for the night, tries to get a decent amount of sleep, and the next day, uh, they head back out towards the mine. So it's around that time that Artemis and her crew uh, start approaching Moonbrook. They were hoping to maybe catch up to the guy before he reached Moonbrook, but uh, he had just too much of a head start. And again, his name was Sivas, or Sivas? Uh, I think it was Sivas, yeah. Um... And they're, they're on their way there. So as they uh, arrive at Moonbrook, uh, they're a bit of a sight, right? Now, they didn't bring everybody. Remember, half of um, Mercy's warriors that were with Artemis and half of the Knights of the Light, they went north, right? So Dante, the knight that, the main one that I've been putting in the story that Artemis, that people know by name, the other guy who was like... Snyder. Snyder. He took the lights up with their, the other direction with Seamus, and then Quan, Dante, and their group came down here to, to Moonbrook. They kind of split up. Um, but Ar Artemis is trying to get there as quickly as she can. Um, they arrive there. They arrive, of course, by the time they get there, it's midday. The market is in full swing. Um, as they approach the city, the a few city. It's not a horribly defended major city, but there's always some. As they see Artemis's contingent with the Knights of the Light and the Knights of Serenity come rolling up, uh, there's automatically a concern because not that they're a trouble. Like, oh, good, there's these guys. Why are they here? Why are they here in numbers? This can't be good. Uh, and as soon as Artemis arrives at the basically the, the border, the front gates, if you will of Moonbrook, uh, she sends word to the guard and say, bring me, I, you know, fetch Mayor Dabs. There's a matter of great concern. I must speak with him immediately. Um, she's standing there with Quan, right? Knight of Serenity and this Knight of the Light, Dante and his guys, but it's Artemis. That's all. If Artemis had been here alone and said, bring me the mayor, he would have been like, I'll be right back. Because, you know, again, they don't do that. It's not that Artemis is a bossy person or that she's feared. It's that people revere her. You know what I mean? She is the holy icon conduit to the gods for this entire country. Um, she's best friends with basically the queen. Um, and so her, her word has a lot of weight. Even though Artemis tries not to flex that, 
this is a situation where she's going to use a dramatic... She goes, she goes, I need him immediately, and I need you to bring me at least 30 more men. And I was surprised by that myself. She's like, I want more soldiers, because I don't know what I'm dealing with here. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, yeah, okay, we're on that right now. So within minutes, Mayor Dabbs arrives on a horse and hops down, and my Lady Artemis, because they've met many times. Dabbs is a really cool dude. They've known him. He's been mayor since even before Serenity was Serenity. And Dabbs is a really cool dude. I need to do a mini, paint a mini of Dabbs. I haven't done one of Mayor Dabbs yet. I'm going to do that. Anyways, sorry. Um, that'd be a good series, all the different mayors. But he shows up and, you know, my lady, how can I be of assistance? And she gives a quick, brief overview of the story. You know, what's what's they've gone through, what they're looking for, and the person in general they're looking for. And she asks questions. Have you had issues here in Moonbrook? This and that. And he's like, a few people got sick early on, but um, it wasn't really bad. It seemed to wane and, and kind of go away. The few clerics that were sent by Serendi's Temple healed a few. I think one person passed away, but they were elderly. You know, they had other issues anyways. Um, but most everyone else was fine uh, in bed a few days and out. But it seemed to have cleared itself up. And he goes, as for the leather worker you're asking about, I don't know him personally. Uh, people come from all sorts of the towns to the marketplace, and it's market day. Now, this day that they're at and the next day is market day, so it's like it's understandable. Uh, he could very well be here. I, I don't know, but we can go look. Artemis is like, well, we need to go in there. We need to look. She goes, but again, at the same time, I'm, I'm afraid I don't want to scare him. I don't want him to go to ground where we can't find him or he does something more drastic. So I don't want to just go marching in there. She goes, I would like to have the entire market area slowly surrounded in guards. Just have people show up, looking kind of casual, not stand their weapons out, but everybody, and looking for anyone matching dude's subscription, or description. And they have a description, because remember, Artemis has never met him. Um, nobody in this group has, really, except for maybe one or two people they brought with him from the last town, just in case. Um, but they got a good description of him. They know what they're looking for. So... Mayor's like, yeah, well, I'm fine with that. And, and, and Artemis had already been talking to Weston and Quan about this on the trip. What do, you, what do we do when we get there kind of thing? It's been a pre-planned thing on their behalf. So Weston and Quan are going to be sticking to her. Obviously, there's going to be several Templars, but they're, you know, the, the, the image they're trying to give off is like, oh, look, the Holy Mother is here and doing some shopping. Yay! Um, not to draw any real attention to that. So if they march in there with 10 and 15... Templars, that's going to look a little bit much. But uh, hanging out with a Knight of Serenity, a Paladin, and a few Templars, that's not out of the normal. That would be expected. You know, the Pope's not walking around without somebody, you know, around him for security. Same situation. Um, so she, she, they, once the start to slowly kind of fill it up, and they start, everybody has their screen. You see anybody like that trying to leave? You detain them by whatever means necessary. And Dabs is like, yeah, I don't. Last thing I want is I don't want a plague hitting my people here either. Hell yeah, whatever you need. So when that happens, of course, Artemis and Weston and Quan start making their way into the shopping, and they're careful to stop at booths and look around. They're trying to find this person because the big section of this people just set up a temporary booth. There's no like in this town. There's no like permanent booths, if you will. There's stores and such, but the market square, you pull up in your wagon or you set up an old barrel and set your stuff on it, throw a blanket over it, whatever. You have a little table you brought. Um, so not everybody's always in the same spot. Some people may have a regular spot, um, especially if you're popular, but they don't know where his would be. So they're kind of meandering around. And it takes a little while. The market's pretty busy today. It's a good day. 
um, which is good for Moonbrook, but harder for Artemis. Um, and this whole time, of course, Weston is on her like glue, doing his looking for evil the whole time. And occasionally he'll get little perks of it, and he'll be like, okay, well, that was a pickpocket. I remember his face. <laughs> okay, well, that guy was a criminal of some kind. He's going to rob someone later. We're going to have to remember that guy's face. That's not what I'm looking for now. He's, he doesn't, I mean, that's what he's picking. He doesn't know what they're going to do, but it's, okay, that's not the guy. Clearly it's something else. Keep him on my radar. Um, which I was kind of viewed it as like a radar, like bleep, bleep, you know. Um, but he works as a, they start working their way into the marketplace. Um, and things are going well. Until they don't. Artemis sees Sebus at the same time that Sebus sees Artemis. And he's been well described to her. And I say you see him through the crowd sitting behind a table. And at the same time, he notices her. And they're looking at each other for just a little too long that they both know that the other one knows that that's the one. Like, I know that's Artemis, and I know she's here for me. And I was like, I know that's the leather worker, and I know he knows I'm here for him. It's that moment of recognition where it's like you're looked at each other too long for it not there not to be something there. I don't know if you've ever had that in your own life. I have. You know, where maybe there's someone you don't like at your job. And maybe they don't like you either, but you get there and you try and ignore that person, but you're in a room, maybe it's a lunchroom, and you look at each other for just too long where you know that you're looking at each other and you both don't like each other, that you can't just look away like you didn't see each other kind of thing. It's you're like, it's too late, now we have to address this. Um, sorry, chalky milk break. And uh, Artemis knows there's no time to waste, and she starts moving in that direction. She saw him before Weston or Quan did. He's right now outside of Weston's 10-foot uh, radius with his... Remember, he can do up to 50 if he really focuses, but it, it uh, just casually all the time, it's on 10. Artemis sees them through the crowd, just starts going that way. Weston and Quan don't question. They just start walking until they can see why. Sebus sees her coming, sees her start walking in that direction, and then sees a paladin, and then sees Quan. And at this point, he knows, they're here for me. I'm like, there's, there's no way. They're making a beeline through the crowd directly at me. And so he starts, seems like he's trying to gather up some of the stuff on his little table that he has, um, which just seems to be a little surprising. There's a, a woman and a couple of kids there that were, like, shopping his wares. He's a leather worker. He's probably got, like, bags and... Purses and other leather things, saddles, whatever. Not saddles, but you know, little stuff, saddle bags, um, kind of stuff. And he just starts gathering stuff up. And Weston, like as they're getting closer, Weston takes a moment and you see, and he's his hands on Artemis, and Artemis is kind of guiding him because they know this is going to happen. And he's really starting to focus. He's still walking, but he's really focusing. And like it, like the bl he his eyes go close. That's that's him. Like not as him. That's the guy we're looking for. That's the guy we're looking for. Yes, I know we were looking for Sebus, but Sebus is the guy we were looking for. This guy's got evil mojo all over him. Moving through, I don't remember what it was. Quan had some type of signal he would do that in the crowd. Because everybody, like the other guards and such, are people from around the thing are watching them, right? Looking for a sign. And he did whatever the thing was. Nothing's supposed to be like everybody in the place would know. He didn't scream wagaga gaga like <laughs> like a goat sucker bird or nothing. But he uh, he did something where then from around the marketplace the soldiers start to converge on their position because 
Now it is. And, and then very quickly, people are going to start to notice, why are all these soldiers start walking all in from a circle? Like, why are we all being kind of squished in here for a second? Um, and then Artemis starts to move quicker when Sebus grabs one of the children. The child screams. The mother doesn't understand what's going on. But Sevis very quickly grabs the child and has a has a knife to her throat. And this is a very it's a Chris blade. If you're not familiar with the Chris blade is Chris blade is what you a lot of times you see is the Egyptian blade. It's kind of the little snaky little spiraling blade. Love a good Chris blade. I used to have a couple of really nice ones, uh, but I gave them away as gifts. I would like to get a new one. I need to get a nice Chris blade. I haven't had one in a long time. Um, but yes, it's out there. The mother. Starts screams, of course, because they grab his kid and put a knife to her throat. It's a little girl. The scream, everybody starts looking at this point. Soldiers start rushing in quicker. Artemis and everybody rushes up at the same time. They, everyone says, like, everybody back. Artemis is pushing her way through the people, along with Quan and Weston. Um, they're getting you know, close, but trying to keep back. Everybody back. We're going to take care of this kind of thing. Sebus kicks his little table out of the way. Leather stuff goes everywhere. He gets this really angry, yet somewhat... Uh, a smile that kind of... What's the word I'm looking for? Almost like a, a successful smile. Like, ah, you caught me, but maybe you're too late kind of a thing. And Artemis steps up and goes, there's no, there's no reason to hurt the child. Nothing has to go all bad here kind of thing. And he looks at him and he's like... He's, he's like, obviously, we've reached a point past discussion... I know why you're here. I know what you're looking for. And yes, if you're here, then you've very likely already found the others. So be it. Things have already been set in motion. And it's too late to stop it all. I'm just one small wheel in a much bigger machine. As he's talking, he's kind of slowly trying to back up a little bit with this kid. Kid probably like 9 or 10 years old. Knife to her throat, and he's kind of backing up, looking around. Like, I'll kill the kid. I'll kill the kid. You know, people are trying to stay back. A lot of people are pushed out of the way now, and it's almost a circle of guards around him. And Artemis is in a spot, right? Because he's got the knife to the kid. If he hurts the kid, Artemis probably going to be able to heal her. But that's not really her good goal here. She's not wanting the kid to get sliced so she can then heal her. And if he slices her too bad and she dies, he can't. You know? Artemis is not able to bring people back from the dead at this point. So she's not that powerful. Um, so it's one of those things where she does not want the kid to get hurt, but at the same time she can't let this guy get away. How many people has he already killed and how many more if, if it gets out there? So they're in a rough spot. Um... So Artemis's plan originally was to capture him. She wanted to find out what their plans were and such. But in this situation, in this high tense with the kid, she realizes she does not know if that's going to be an option. And very, very quietly, she just says, take him. And Quan and Weston, that's all they needed. They're like, okay. They don't move. They don't do anything. They just kind of stand there. And everything kind of stops for a minute. And then Weston starts to walk one way and Quan walks the other. They're kind of going around him. 
And he's like, hey, back, back. And he's watching, and he's watching, and they're trying to figure out, you know, like, what's going on? And he's, he's going back and forth with the kid, trying to keep the kid between them, but it's kind of hard. You know what I mean? And as they're watching and such, he's like, he's like, he's like, fine then, if that's how it's going to be. And you could tell he's going to cut the kid. He just, he winds up like he's going to across the throat. He goes like this, and then he screams as a crossbow bolt funks him right in the eye. Because Dante was watching. Sir Dante was there. Sir Dante, that's his one good skill. Dude's a pretty good guy with a crossbow. And while he, as soon as he was able to get the focus off of everybody else, Dante, who was kind of coming up behind Artemis, was able to line up without him really being stared at and was able to shot him. And he gets him, like, right... Not, I won't say he goes at eye and kills him. It wasn't that. But it thunks him, like, in, in such a way in the side that it literally just guts right across his face and his eye guts does get, like, pierced from it. But it doesn't go straight in. It didn't kill him automatically. But he screams... And he drops the knife because he's ah, and he grabs his eye, and Quan bolts in, and Weston bolts in, and Weston grabs the kid, and Quan, Quan has his sword out. Sebus, one eye blood flowing down his face, still has the wherewithal to defend himself, and as Quan's coming in with his knife, he unleashes a spell at Quan. At least some type of a thing. He goes his hand. And he goes like this, and a flume comes out. At first, they think it's a spell, but it's not. Quan comes through it, and as he does, he's able to like literally behead the dude. Like, and Quan does. Quan's sword sharp. He whoom, just completely guts him. But at the same time, Quan then immediately goes down because he's in pain because something's been thrown in his face. And Artemis goes rushing in at that point. Weston's checking to make sure the kid's okay. He's checking for cuts and such, poison, pinholes, anything that could hurt the kid. And he does his little lay on hands on the girl because she's got a bit of a cut from it. Like, you know, she's not like seriously hurt, but a little bit. He uses his one heel to heal the little girl. And Artemis comes in and immediately grabs Quan and his eyes are all like swollen to his, it's like it's such that they're inflamed and it's like it's not just running eyes but it's like a yellow pus is running down there and it's like his eyes are just wholly swollen up and clearly he's been infected with something and Artemis just like you know starts talking to him and to be calm stay still she's going to take care of it and it's, at first he's freaking out a little bit because it hurts so much but he hears Artemis's and if there's one dude who can enter into a zen state it is Quan and Quan like he's just sits there and you can tell he's hurting but he just quietly sits there and waits for Artemis to do her spell because not these spells sometimes are not instantaneous it can take a little bit when you're doing a huge spell and she does she starts off with a with a heal spell and the heal spell is pretty much one of the strongest spells uh, for healing in Dungeons and Dragons uh, it literally cures you of everything it it just heals you 100% you're back to full hit points Anything wrong with you? You had a sliver, it's gone. Ingrown toenail, healed. Like, everything. It heals everything. But it takes a little bit to get that spell off. And it drains Artemis a chunk to do it. But she doesn't know what this is. She's not going to play. Seamus is in the city guard are pulling everybody back. The kid's now back with her mother. They're pulling everybody back out of the way. Making sure that any of this, this misty stuff that got Quan, nobody else gets hit with it. Um, Artemis walks right through it and it doesn't affect her. Just because of... What she is, it, she's immune to that. She kind of goes through it, and it's dissipating and such. And uh, you know, Seamus isn't fanning it at the crowd or nothing. Or, uh, anybody else, Weston isn't. But, you know, there's that kind of thing. And and Quan finally, as the healing, she can see his eyes start to heal up and such. And, and like she's done the spell. He's right as rain. She's drained. That's a big spell for her to cast. Uh, especially without any prep or really knowing she was going to hardcore have to. She thought she might have to. She was afraid she was going to have to do it on the kid.
Um, and all this being done, the guards show up with dabs and, and people are freaking out. And uh, Dabs knew about the potential leather stuff. So the Templars arrive with the other couple clerics that they had. And some more clerics come in from the temple of um, Moonbrook. Because there's a temple in each one of these towns. Uh, the the Artemis' temple paid for all of these. So as soon as they hear Artemis is here, clerics from them and their Templars are rushing. How, why is she here? And we didn't know this was coming. Something's important. And they come rushing as well. And they start checking everybody in the area, healed, so on. Does anybody get the, the stuff in their face? Did anybody get cut? They start gathering up the leather items. The clerics themselves are casting cure disease and such on the leather items because they, they assume that they're tainted, which they were. Um, and then, of course, immediately send out runners. Anyone who bought leather goods needs to could be in danger that there was something wrong with them that could make you sick please come in we will take care of them you'll get your money back artemis artemis said that tell them we will we will buy them back from you at twice the price you paid and we'll make sure that you and your family are okay artemis has the money to throw around like that the temple says we need them back because you're in danger and we're going to give you twice as much money there's not many people like mm, i really like this purse though it's just not going to happen and the guards start going around and saying that we're closing the, you know, we're, we're not, cl we're closing down the market for the day, which Deb's not real happy about losing that. And some of the market people won't either, but it'd be like anybody who wants to can still go outside the city gates. You can still trade. We will open it up again tomorrow, but we have to make sure everybody's okay. After everybody's healed, they take care of the leather stuff, which first they decurse it. And then it's, uh, they're going to burn it. Not here. They're going to take it well outside the city, out in the middle of nowhere, and burn it in case there's any remaining stuff in there. They don't want the smoke hitting people's faces or nothing. In case there's something left in there it didn't get. They're going to take it out and they're going to burn it. They think that's the best bet. Um, but at this point, after they've checked everything and looked at all the stuff, um, at this point they don't believe that there's any other threats in Moonbrook. They believe that they've taken care of the coven now. Um... Unless the toy... Like, Artemis didn't... She thought it was Sevis over the toy maker Because they found stuff in Sevis's house. But the toy maker, they're not sure. But Snyder and his people, hopefully if they find there, we'll have better luck. Uh, and Miyasha went with him. That's what it was. Miyasha went with him. So there's a cleric in each one. So hopefully Miyasha has luck. And then at this point, she's going to now return to Serenity, uh, where she should hopefully meet up with Miyasha and the rest of everybody, Seamus and them, when they get there. So Artemis has... For all intents and purposes, fixed up most everything she needs to do. They're there most of the day. They spend the night there, and that you know because it's they're tired from all the fast horsing and stuff. And so now they're going to rest there. Artemis is going to bless and give a small ceremony the next day when the market opens. Her blessing is all the country is going to need to say, "Oh, good, it's safe to be here again." Uh, but everything in that area has been clean and cleansed and sanctified and decursed and de-diseased by her knights and Templars all throughout the rest of the day and that evening to be on the safe side. But the next morning she gives that little speech after she's rest, has some delicious noms, and then they decide to head back to Serenity. Mercy. After a couple days, arrives back at the what do you call it? The um, mine. She arrives there just after several mages had arrived from the mage tower. 
Because remember, there's a mage tower now in Serenity. Uh, that is one of the part of the Brotherhood of Magic, which is what the mage tower in Paxwell was that they've been working with and friends with for years. Um, and they, several mages had been sent out. No slouches either. They sent some pretty high-level mages that they had there. These guys are at least level 8 or 9. And they show up, um, and they're testing stuff. Artemis arrives. She goes, okay, what's going on? They're like, well, several clerics arrived from the temple. Nobody really big, because it seems Artemis needed some help, and she, Artemis, and, and a lot of the big clerics left to go to some other towns. Mercy not happy to hear about all this, because she knew that some of this was happening. She knew it was going, but she's like, wow, more got sent out on top of that? I need to get back to Serenity and make sure everything's okay. But first, uh, several clerics are here. They've checked with the people. All my people that were injured are healed at this point. Uh, no other lives were lost other than the ones that were lost during the original issue. Mercy, her father, because uh, remember, Seth stayed behind. Mercy and her father go down into the mines where the mages are. They make it into the room. Uh, there's a couple guards there of hers that are guarding outside and down inside with the mages. There's a young mage who's an apprentice type kind of hanging outside the room. And when she arrives, he says, please wait out here. I'm, they're doing some testing right now. It's not safe to enter right now. So Mercy and her dad just kind of hang out and talk about stuff. What are you going to do about Ormon? Well, here's what I'm thinking. And well, here's what I'd recommend. This is what worked for me. And, you know, just military talk. Now, Mercy would debt her father's way experience. Mercy would love to have any advice he has in this situation of, of for defenses. Now that he's seen some of what her land layout is, he may have some good ideas as well. Um, very soon the uh, apprentice, he steps in, he comes back out. He says, you're welcome to go in now if you'd like. And they do. And inside there are three mages, um, all wearing, uh, let's see, white robes. They're all clerics of, uh, or all, sorry, all mages of good at this point. Even though in my world, the, ma the color of your robe does not necessarily mean your alignment. In some of the D&D worlds, especially Dragonlands, white is good, red is neutral, black is bad. I'm not that strict. While there are, it's more likely someone wearing a black robe is evil, it's not 100%. And you'll find a lot of people in purples and blues and greens, just depending on what affiliation they're with, what their specialty is. Um, that can also denote it as well. Mages who are like um, Tobias who were really special into magic items and artifacts specifically, might be more likely to lean towards one color over another. Uh, Mercy has uh, only met these mages maybe once or twice at official gatherings. She doesn't know them very well. Um, but they kind of talk about this thing, and they're like, the scepter, at this point, what that scepter thing is untouchable. We can't touch it. Um, anytime we try or any time spell we cast at it, it's literally being cast back. It's defending itself. Or there's a spell around it that's reflecting our spells. And it's a concern uh, because we're using some relatively high mojo spells and it's shrugging them off. So we don't know if it's magical or if there's a spell cast upon it that's keeping it. Uh, and they bring Mercy in. So, they, so yeah, you can see that there's the colors and such. And they're fate, and we checked them. There's no specific pattern to them. They're random. There's, there's nothing we can find, at least at this point, that we can tell. We've been taking notes now for like half a day. And Mercy hasn't looked at it since she basically saw it the first time and got shot at the other side of the room. She walks up to the mage, and the mages are about to say, and as you can see, the and she says that, as, as soon as Mercy looks up and sees it, it starts to glow brighter. Everybody's like... They step back and it stops glowing. The mages walk up and look at it again. They're like, 
Mercy, come walk this way a minute. Mercy steps closer. Sure enough, it starts glowing again. And it's glowing whatever color it happens to be, because it's not changing colors. Remember, this the this glow, the light kind of like a like a glowing light bulb from inside of it kind of thing. Um, it appears to be mostly gold, brass, and silver. Um, there appear to be uh, uh, rubies aligned across. They look like rubies. It'd be like a, almost like a morning, almost like a spike thing, but in patterns across the top, small but very nice rubies. Um, and so they're looking at this, and they're like, Mercy gets close, and it starts glowing. And she's like, last time I touched this sarcophagus thing, I got blue across the room. And she's like, we heard about that. You should not do that. Don't, if it, you should not touch things if you're not sure. She's like, well, you know, I've seen people do it before. Kind of had an idea, with, you know. And they're like, no, don't do that. If you don't know what it is, I man, call us. Please, <laughs> don't do that. Because to them, this is the queen of this town they live in as well. While they may answer to the mages, she's, she's still known to be a good queen. They're like, don't do that, please. We don't want to lose you to something like that. <laughs> Almost like a bad don't do that. Um, and they're like, uh, it's it's reacting to you somehow. I don't maybe because you were the first one to touch it, uh, the sarcophagus. It may be reacting to you. We're not sure. And she's like, should I touch it? <laughs> And like, we just told you, no, you, and as they're saying, no, you shouldn't, the thing, the light goes, and then all the light fails, and it just falls and lands right inside that little bowl of his hands that memory was making. And the armor just kind of collapses in upon itself a little bit, and the scepter's just laying on top of it. It's no longer glowing. It's not doing anything. And the majors are like, please stand back. They start casting some spells. He goes... We're getting nothing from it at all. Not an ounce of magic. It's not giving off any type of magic spell. There's no spells around it that we can find. There's nothing. This took them like 30 minutes of all sorts of stuff. We'd like to try to pick it up. Mercy's like, you want me to pick it up? And they're like, okay. Because at first they're like, no. But they're like, well, you're the... It reacted to you. We're going to be careful. We're going to call down a couple clerics first. And they did. Some of the clerics came down. They're like, you be ready to heal her. In case she goes flinging across the room or something. And Mercy's like, that is not what I want to hear. That is not optimism, please. We're like, sorry. Artemis is like, okay. And Mercy's like, okay. And she grabs it and nothing happens. She picks it up and she's like, it's oddly lighter than it would appear. And she's like, yeah, when I'm when I'm holding it, she goes, it's, it definitely it's still heavy. It's got weight to it. It's made of metal. She goes, but it almost feels more like it's almost like it's hollow. She goes, I can tell it's not. She goes, I know this is solid metal just by picking it up. And it's very well made. I don't see much, I don't see any type of tool marks on it at all. This is a very well made thing. And she goes, this would, it looks more like the type of thing that a ruler would hold. You know what I mean? It's not a weapon, it doesn't look like. It's something like a ruler would hold. She goes, it feels sturdy, but it feels exceptionally light. One of the mages may, may I see it? She goes, sure. And as soon as she goes to move it over, it starts to glow a little bit again. She's like, whoa, and pulls it back. And the mage's like, whoa. And so she makes pulls it, it stops glowing. And Mercy's like, well, now that's frustrating. Does this mean I have to hold on to it all the time? And they're like, I don't know. Try putting it down. She puts it down on the edge of the sarcophagus, takes her hand off. Nothing happens. Everybody else moves towards it. Nothing happens. My mate says, I'm going to try to pick it up. And he does. It's perfectly fine. Now, this is very frustrating. It reacted for just a moment there. But now it's not reacting at all. But how is that so? It has zero magical trace on it at all right now. 
Not a single thing is telling us this is a magic item. It's just a piece of metal with some pretty gems on it. I mean, it's valuable. It's gold inlaid. Like I said, there's metal and steel. Looks like silver inlaid on there, and the gems. It's probably worth a pretty penny. At this point, Agor's come down himself from the mine. He's like, okay. He gets filled in. And like, well, what should you do? Well, the major's like, well, we'd like, we need to take it back to surrender. We need to have it looked at by people more, more used to this than us. And Mercy's like, okay, I'm going to take it. And they're like, you sure you should? She goes, I don't know if it's going to flare back up again and start doing weird magic stuff, but I would rather be in my hand if it does. I do not want to put any of this danger in someone else's. I foolishly opened this door. I will be the one to bear its load. So she goes and picks it up. And she's like, sure enough, no problem. Slides it in her belt. No problem. She's like, okay. And her father's like, I don't really like this. She goes, trust me, I don't either. But what else am I going to do? He's like, you want me to carry it? And she's like, no, no, appreciate it, Dad. But my responsibility. He's like, I get it. So I spend a little bit more time there the rest of the day with Agor and his camp. Make sure everything's up. Um, that section of the mine is going to be temporarily closed off. They're going to mine away from it. The mine's going to be reopened. Um, but until the, the mages have some more time to check and make sure there's nothing else like that in that area, uh, no one's going to dig in that zone. And should anything else pop up in the future, they will stop immediately and cease all mining until Mercy and whoever she sends shows up. She's like, they come across the corner of what looks like a room, shut it all down. He's like, instantly, not a problem at all. So they spend the rest of the day there chilling out. The next the next morning, her and her father and what couple of warriors she still has with her, she left most of them at the at the border, uh, go with her and they head back towards Serenity. Darsh has been on a boat. He's been on a boat for a while. And they've been now the Chimera is super fast. It's now in the waters where the pirates had been sighted, but they're trying to go north at this point. They're heading up the direction that the boats were seen to escape and go towards each time that uh, they had attacked someone and then fled. Um, the other thing that Darts is concerned with is what if there were other boats they came across that didn't get away? So they're also looking for anything in the water that could be signs of a sunken ship or recent battle, anything that might show, because, again, survivors in the water. So while they're still trying to go really fast, they're also trying to make a very good sweep of the area. And at this point, they haven't found much at all. Uh, my day is going well, Alibaba's. I appreciate that. Just uh, sharing my story. Um, but they are uh, heading very north. Let me get to the other part here. Yes. And then we get back with Dandy. So Dandy, remember, it's been it was already been a few days for her since the dream. And then she uh, they did their little thing and they ran into one eye. Now they're Outside of the city. Dandy had snuck back in herself and gathered all the rest of everything that they had at the inn and snuck back out again because they don't know who was watching for them. Uh, but they, they felt it was best to just mysteriously disappear in this situation uh, just in case. So outside town, there's a small cave or something somewhere that one eye has been kind of hiding in and they go there with him. And of course, Dandy wants some answers. Michael too, but Dandy's like, I've been out here for days, you didn't say hello one time, then the Panther attacks me, and then you show up. Like, was I bait? Was I the worm on the end of the hook? She feels very, very good about this. She feels like that was a very good analogy, and she's made her point with the worm and the wiggling. Even though she wasn't wiggling, 
and she's not a big fan. Like worm, worms are cute and such, but she's you know she doesn't like the fish. She doesn't like to hurt the worms. The worms are nicer than the fish in many situations. Well, thank you very much, Alba. I I appreciate that. I uh, any I like anything Keanu. <laughs> um, so hang out there. They're like, why are we here? Obviously, there's a problem in this town, and now we know there's a werepanther living there. So why are we here? What's going on? Tell us a tale. And that's when one eye decides to... Oh, bye, Colonel. Have a good one, sir. Uh, this is when um, he decides to tell him kind of what, why this all happened. And bear with me, because this is across several pages. Two different books. It's one downside when you're writing these stories. Sometimes the uh, half it's in one book, half it's in the other. And let me find it here. So... There we go. Whispering Hills. Found it. Okay. So he tells them that when he learned of what was going on in Whispering Hills, he knew he had to deal with it, but he didn't know anybody else who might have the capability to help. And so that's why he sent out looking for Dandy. And while he knows that Dandy and Michael are normally hunters of the undead, uh, some of those skills might especially when it comes to tracking and, and dealing with things of the slightly more paranormal, I guess, um, might be a benefit. Plus, to be honest with you, uh, of pretty much anyone in the world, Dandy's the one person he would trust. And that may sound odd, but he's, he's a rogue, hands down. He's a leader of a thieves' guild, and he doesn't trust anyone. That's how he's lived as long as he is. But Dandy legitimately wants nothing from him. Like, Dandy's approached him as a friend, and as long as he didn't hurt anybody she cared with, he passed. she passed over tons of money and news, and, oh, here's your share of the treasure, and gives him more than most of his uh, rogues would make in years. Like, here's your share, um, legitimately wanting nothing in return other than to be part of the, the be friends. And so this is someone who legitimately, I think, would come and help me, and I don't have to worry about them stabbing me in the back uh, and or trying to, you know, get something from me out of it. And he says this to her. And Danny's like, that's probably very true. You live a very, very strange life. I don't think I'd like it. Michael snickers a little bit like, I don't think I would either. And when I kind of laughs, he goes, you know, sometimes I'm not a big fan myself. He goes, but you know, we do what we're good at. He goes, of course, I wasn't always leader of a thieves guild. I used to be an adventurer like you until I took an arrow in the knee. I'm kidding. I had to make that again. Um, so I <laughs> keep making a Skyrim reference, but he goes, uh, he goes long ago, uh, I actually did something along the same lines as the two of you hunted, if you will, specific types of problems in the area. I would have actually, some people would have probably saw me as a good man back then. I was, uh. I came from a long line of that profession. And my father taught me how to fight. He taught me how to move, how to be fast, how to be silent. Um, all the skills that any good thief would love to have, he taught me in order to hunt the things that we needed to hunt. And Danny's like, ooh, it's not Kender, was it? He goes, it's not Kender. He's like, okay. I wouldn't have been okay with that. Michael just shakes his head. He goes, no, he goes, we also dealt with things of a troubling nature. Not specifically undead, although there are times when we've had to deal with them. We, partially on bounty, of course. Uh, towns were troubled by things, whether it be a small group of orcs or it be a, 
uh, some undead or something of that nature, we would come in and we would deal with it. We'd hunt down those problems and we'd, and we'd solve them for people. Um, and most of the time we lived well because of it. There was a specific um, instance, sadly, when we were hunting something that had been it actually killed or mauled several of uh, this town's uh, or this village's people. And they'd sent out looking for help, but the liege lord of the area didn't bother to care that much. And so when it got to us that there were some people in need of help, they said that they gathered up what funds they had and they were going to try to pay for any help they could. But they were a small town without much and most people didn't care. Well, that's usually the people we looked for the most. We took payment, we lived okay, but it wasn't so much about the money. It was more about the doing what we could to help. Danny's smiling and nodding like, I knew there was a good person in there. And he's looking at her like, don't, don't typecast me. I'm not done the story yet. So we were hunting this thing and it was fast. It was hard to know what it was, but we were trying to, it took us a while to find it. At first we thought it was just an animal, but then it was too smart for that. The tracks would disappear. There were times where it hit its tracks. Um, but it was until we were set upon in the night where we trying to track it at night were uh, basically walked into an ambush of our own. And my father and I entered in to fight the beast. And it was a panther, Very, very large panther, Much larger than the one you saw last night. He goes... And when we were attacked, we did our best to kill it. And we injured it enough that it ran off. We managed to fight it away. And we feared it would come to town, so we decided, I told him, we'll, we'll stay here a couple days to make sure it comes back. What I did not know is that my father hid from me that during that fight, he had been bitten by the beast um, and hoped he could find a way to cure it, but he did not. And unfortunately, my father became a werepanther. And as is much to happen with a lycanthropy of any style, uh, it can have effect on you mentally. My father did not stay the man he was. At that point, he tried to attack me in the hopes of infecting me as well. Um, we fought and I managed to escape, but with his new abilities, he was much too much for me. And I ran for... Quite a while. Every so, no matter where I went, eventually he'd catch up. So it wasn't until I came to a large city, I was like, okay, I can get lost in the city. I didn't have anything. I didn't have a name. I had to stay hidden. And turns out much of my training helped me live off the streets that I gained the attention of the local thieves guild who gave me very few options but to join. And I worked my way up their ranks very, very quickly until I was in a position that I felt I would be a better leader than their current one. And so I took leadership. He doesn't really say how he took leadership, but Dandy and Michael look at each other like, yeah, we know what that means. Okay. He goes, and I've stayed hidden ever since. Going by the name One-Eye, because he lost his eye in a battle against his dad. But he's going by the name One-Eye, the Thieves Guild, hoping, and for years upon years, never heard anything again. But his father thought maybe he'd given up, maybe he went the wrong direction. And then Merge Worlds happened. The Great Merge. He's like, I heard nothing. I thought maybe I'm finally free. Maybe he was did not come through the merge like, like many of us did. Many of us lost people we cared about that time. 
I thought maybe I was the lucky one who lost someone I didn't care about any longer. But uh, then the other thieves' guilds started causing war, started attacking. They were funded, had a little bit better skills than they should have. I would have another guild building power of that nature. I should have known was happening, but it happened a little bit too quick and a little bit too secretly. And I realized then that something was working against me. It was too late to keep the to, to basically save the guild before I realized who and what it was. And I was forced once again into hiding. And upon leaving, the guild fell apart. As so, the guild itself and Paxwell is now multiple small guilds fighting each other over who should lead. A guild civil war. He's like so. I started. I, I, I tired of dealing with this and having to give up everything once again. Not the same one I, person I was back then. That was almost twenty years ago. I decided I wasn't going to deal with that anymore. So I started reaching out to the few contacts I have, and that's when Whispering Hills hit my came into came into the story. Enough information I was able to find out the odd circumstances of what was going on in the town. And I was pretty sure I knew what I looked for. I came here, I saw it, but I realized my father is here, and unfortunately he's not alone. He has others, and it was going to be more than I could deal with. And that's why we sent for you. And he's like, okay, only on one condition. He's like, what? She goes, what was your name? <laughs> she said it just like that. What was your name? He goes, my last name was Pathwarden. She's like, what was your first name? He goes, Blaze. She goes, really? She goes, my father, I, I never liked the name. He goes, Blaze, huh? I like one eye better. Michael's, he's like, it's not a bad name. It was my name, thank you, and I'd rather you not make fun of it. I'm not making fun of it, I'm just saying. It's an interesting choice. It was a little banter back and forth between them about the name. He's like, enough about my name. But Blaze Pathwarden was his name. And his father's name was Lanzer. Which like, Danny's like, ah, it's harder to make fun of that one. Okay. So the discussion here, what they found, what he says, is that there are at least three or four other Werepanthers here besides Lanzer. Lanzer, from what he could tell, is holding up in the mines. The whole town at this point is being controlled by him and his minions. From what I can understand, um, he has some allies and they have taken some prisoners. You'll notice that it was mostly guys at the bar, guys at the inn. And Michael's like, yeah, it was mostly guys. Many people's families... Um, Someone has been taken, uh, locked away, hidden, kidnapped, uh, is being kept kind of a prisoner to keep the town behaving and keeping it mining. Lanzer is using uh, the mine and its money to finance whatever it is he's working on, and uh, he's living down in it, and that's where I believe they're keeping everyone. Daddy's like, I don't like him. Like, and he's like, you know what? Neither do I. We should do something about that. Danny goes, I was thinking the same thing, but I thought of it first. But okay. What's the plan? And he's like, well, I'll be honest with you. So I was hoping you would maybe be able to help. He goes, I have a bit of the layout of the mine from what I've been able to find out from the few people I've talked to, although it's hard 
to be a one-eyed man in a town where you're kind of hunted. She's like, I can get that. I can understand that. He goes, but I've got a little bit of information on the layout of the mine. If we can get inside, we have a couple options. If we can free the people that are in there, then most of the miners and the town guard and such that are all kind of uh, being held in sway, uh, they may be able to help fight back. Uh, there are some that are working purely for profit, and these ones kind of the, the overseers, if you will. Um, these are the ones that aren't here because they're being blackmailed, just because they work for them for the money. Um, so there's that. Yeah, Flame Monster, I apologize. I'm really not going to be able to help you with that now. I really don't do Minecraft stuff during this stream. If you'll hit me up in, uh, my, in the uh, Discord channel, I'd be happy to answer it. Although I'm pretty sure I've already answered it in there if you go check the answer on the stream. Um, so that's where they're kind of at so they start making plans thank you Amir for the follow or for the sub. Oh, give me a second it's catching up for the ones from earlier we good? we're good, okay <laughs> does that sometimes um, so uh Kind of looking at that. So they start making plans. They decide that they're going to sneak in the next night because the next night, most of the miners won't be in there. They'll be back in their homes and such. There's less people to have to sneak by or get through to see if they can find their way in. And the big fear is, who is the... Where, who, who are the Panthers? Do you know? And he says, yes. I know who four of them are. Or he goes, I phrase, I know who three of them are. I believe there's one more. He goes, let me find the list again. Vivek from Vivek's Old All Goods. And he's like, I knew it. I knew it when he didn't say his name was Bertram. Vivek, the odd person, is one of them. Gilhuli is another one. Gilhuli is the uh, guy who owns the Eye of the Ruby, the, ge the gem crafting store. And the third one is Giacomo, who is the guy who runs the inn. Danny's like, mm-hmm, all makes sense now. Michael's like, you knew it was those three? She goes, I didn't have any idea, but it all makes sense now. She goes, and I'm pretty sure we know the fourth one. It's the mayor. And he goes, no, the mayor's fine. And she's like, no, but he's the fourth one. He's the bad guy, and we've been tracking him. He goes, no, actually, he's actually perfectly fine. He's, he's a normal guy. Well, he was just sneaking out with this other guy. He goes, I think the other guy is, her, is his manservant, uh, Gondo, who they never met. They didn't actually search and meet Gondo. Uh, Gondo has been living with the mayor since, from what I can tell, since my father arrived in this city. So I don't know if he's just a paid minion or what. So I'm not sure that the mayor may be a paid minion, but I don't believe he's a werepanther. I, I've seen nothing of that. She's like, okay, paid minion. Okay, we'll go with that then. Maybe not, but he's something. They're like, okay. So they decide that they're going to break in the next night. So they rest throughout the day, as one does. And next night, they prepare themselves to sneak on in. So they have a map of the maze. It's rudely drawn, crudely drawn. I was not able to find it, sadly. I don't know what ever happened to that. But they're going to have to make it through. And it's 
it was a very thief style dungeon because we have that uh, Dandy and One Eye are both big, really good thieves. I mean, they've got the sneaking down. And Michael's been learning. Uh, he's not the best, but he's learning. And he has to sneak with Menandra because he has to have Menandra to fight these Were Panthers because that's the only really powerful weapon he's got. And it's what he's the best at. So they have to sneak on the way inside. Now, there are people in the mines. It's open 24 hours a day. Um, but there are some people like guards and such. And some of those people are just minions and some of them are there because they don't have a choice. So they want to try to hurt as few people as they can on the way inside because some of these people maybe just not have an option. You know, why kill a guy because he's, his wife's been kidnapped? They don't want to do that. Danny's too nice of a person for that. So they managed to get there. So it was a whole lot of sneaky sneaky. Uh, there was climbing. There was several. I gave several different layouts inside the building. There were some type of rafter type things that helped hold the mine. The mine itself was one big chamber with multiple. You, you mine down into it to a large chamber with multiple branches off of it. And uh, there were several different ways they could sneak in. Uh, they did. Dandy did do several rogue backstabs uh, to hurt, not kill. So literally bonk people over the back of the head, snuff them out cloth, that type of thing. Uh, they were literally, as they were making their way down, they were knocking people unconscious. Because some, it was hard to know who was the people they could worry about. Now, they haven't seen any signs of any of the Panthers at this point by the time they meet, reach the main chamber. When they reach the main chamber, they can see that there's a lot of stuff going on in the chamber. There's uh, different basic machines, anvils, there's forges there, some of the stuff's being converted, and they can see that there's a large amount of weapons being made. Um, and that concerns them. Because uh, one eye's like, I've been watching the town for, for weeks now, almost months, and I've never seen a shipment of weapons leave this place. So they're stockpiling them here for something. Clue for the future? Maybe. So... They start dealing with all of that. And they're looking on the, taking that in. So there's people that are working in the forges, blacksmiths, armorers. There's stuff being made in that nature. It's almost like they're building for an army. Down in the middle of this group is Giacomo. He seems to be walking around, talking to there's a couple of people talking to him. He's not in his Panther form, he's in regular Giacomo form, head of the head of the inn. He's walking around and he's looking at things. He's picking up some of the weapons, inspecting them. Sometimes he yells something out like unhappily and something more like a good job kind of thing. He's going around kind of like overseeing what's happening. The room is very full and it's pretty well lit. It's going to be hard to get through here. Not impossible, but hard. They have to decide where they want to go. From what one eye blaze, from what uh, one eye was able to find out, there are two tunnels that lead to a chamber where it's no longer being mined out. One is where his father seems to be staying. The other one is where the prisoners seem to be being kept. Their whole plan has been to try to get to those and get them freed, or at least get them out of there, armed or something, where they could try to help fight for their freedom. So. Dandy and Michael have to figure out what they're going to do. They decide that they're going to dress up like miners. Uh, miners, not minors. Hmm. 
but they're going to dress up like Mario. So some of the people they knocked out, they end up swapping clothes, stashing the bodies behind things in barrels, wherever they can find. So they find some. It's hard. They can't find anything for Dandy. So she tries to put on more of her regular clothing and just dirties it up a whole lot and pulls a hood up over her ears and hair to try to hide that. The biggest thing, again, is Menandra. They're stuck with Menandra, so he's got it wrapped up with some sticks again, like he normally does, so it looks like he's carrying some wood in. And they're going to try to sneak across like they're coming in with a supply of whatever. As far as they're in now, they've already knocked out enough people to get down here that if, if it had been a fight-your-way-in kind of thing, down here people would have already noticed. So they're hoping they blend in a little bit better. And they're doing sneaking, hiding in shadows. All the little thieves skills. There were many different roles for Dandy here. Um, and she takes the lead in all of these situations. And she's being very careful. And a lot of times, uh, one eye will literally be walking in a manner that she's hiding behind him. Like she's standing behind him. So if he's doing something, people walk by to try to keep it. She's hiding behind him so they don't know she's there. Because he's a, he's a tall, regular dude. He's wearing all the stuff and everything, and he's kind of got bandages and such. He's got the way he's wearing the thing around his hat and whatever around his hood. It kind of hides his eye real well. He's not wearing a patch right now. It's just a scar, but he's uh, he's kind of got the hat down because the patch stands out too much. And they managed to sneak their way through this central room. It was very, very, very tough. I had to give her a lot of rolls, and Michael uh, was basically the negative. I said, you three succeed, you have to roll of this, but here's your negative. Your negative is Michael. <laughs> so he's the negative on your rolls. So she had to plan out the path, and I had a bunch of designs on the map. I had drawn it on a dry erase board of here's where things are, and she had to plot her course of how she wanted to do stuff. Did well, and she managed to make it across the room with both of them. They make their way down the tunnel to where the prisoners, for all intents and purposes, are. And there are a few guards down here. And, again, they're trying to take them out when possible, but there's a... At this point, it's where they have to enter into their first actual combat. Because there's some spots they just can't sneak by. So they have to be very, very quick um, to try to keep from getting too much suspicion. Um, but then the sounds of combat get a little bit too loud, and one eye and Michael are like, we've got this, go free them. So Danny's like, okay... And she goes running down the rest of the hallway. And she gets down there. Sure enough, who's down there? Vivek. Who's seeing her. And she can see behind him that there's a bunch of there's bars and stuff that have been put in place. They're like wooden bars and such. But there's a bunch of people on the other side. He turns into a panther and attacks. So Danny's solo fighting this, this panther at this point. Where panther. And the upside is she doesn't have Michael. So she really gets to fight in her best way, however she likes. And um, I'm not going to lie, she took a big beating in this fight. She manages to kill him. Uh, again, luckily she's got enough magical weapons and such that'll hurt a were-creature. Um, and the, hunt, the hunting undead stuff still helps going for other things. And she's a rogue. She's got her fights. But she takes quite a beating in this. Um, and she, after she finally does take him out, she's able to get the key and unlock the prisoners that are in there. And there's probably a good 30 or 40 people in there. Right? All locked in. And many of them are children, but not all. There's some older folks in there and such. But all of them are in one way, you know, weaker, if you will. They're not like a lot of really good fit people. So Dandy's like, you know, they're, they're okay. They're like, hey, we got to fight our way out of here. You, you, you're going to have to fight. I can't take them all by myself. And so 
people are, as they're going down the, the hallway, these people are following her. They're grabbing the odd pickaxe or shovel out of the corner and people grabbing what they can, trying to keep the kids in the back. And uh, they come up. And of course, now at this point, there are several miners who are fighting One-Eye and Michael. And when they see all these people come running up behind them, they all stop fighting him. And instead, rush past them to grab onto a kid or a wife or a father, whoever was in there, and people that are like, and, and Michael, the person, everybody just runs past him, like, do we bonk them? Do we not bonk them? They ran by him, and they're like, we've got to, this is the first chance that they're feeling that they can get their family out of here. Especially since they knew a were-panther was protecting them, and Dandy and their friends have got past them. It gives them a bit of hope. So they start, now on mass, they decide to just rush out this tunnel. Well, as they're coming out into the main room, Giacomo, of course, has already become a were-panther. And as soon as these people come rushing out of the tunnel, some of the miners start turning on other ones, like foremen and people that are overseeing. And the whole thing starts to fight out a bit because those are their loved ones down there and they want to go down and help them. And people are like, no, stay up here. Fight begins. The whole place kind of goes on mass. And Giacomo's a little caught off guard by this. He wasn't expecting this. And at this point, you know, one eye's hat comes off and gets rid of that. And, they're, and he's like, and everybody, the people that recognize it's them, and they come. Uh, Vivek, Giacomo comes to attack. I'm so sorry, I'm tripping all of my words there. Giacomo comes to attack. So now they're fighting another one. Um, in the middle of this scene, there's a whole bunch of battles going on around. There's some regular people they have to fight as well. Um, where Michael was a bit of a down in fighting before, uh, one eye more than makes up for. Because One-Eye is also very, very... And again, he's fought and hunted stuff like this before when he was younger. And he's only improved his roguelike skills ever since. So in many ways, Michael is going around trying to help out the people. Or the humans and such that are in there. He's running around and he's... Anybody he sees that looks like they're a guard or trying to fight... You know, he jumps in and gets involved there and helping people get out the tunnels. Which is what Dandy was yelling at him to do during the fight anyways. So it mostly comes down to her and One-Eye fighting the... The this one. This one goes much better since it's the two-on-one. Um, they take a couple of hits. Dandy's already used the last of her healing potions, uh, but she manages, they, they manage to take out this one as well, and uh, it's not long before Giacomo hits the ground. Mosquito, of all things. Good lord, a little early for that. Sorry. I had to swat a mosquito in the middle of that. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then, about that time, mosquito. Uh, so, 948 already. Okay. Got a couple big things we have to hit very, very quickly before I can end tonight. We've got a couple specific things. So while this is going on, of course, the whole mine's going crazy. The town now, people start rushing out the, the entrance and the town is waking up and people are coming out. Many of these miners who are off the clock are seeing their family come running towards their homes grab their picks or their swords, whatever they've got, and they run out there and trying to get their family free, and anybody who's trying to stop it just kind of gets taken over by this tidal wave as the town, for the first time, is revolting against those people that are overseeing them. Even there's another were-panther uh, Michael can see out there being fought, but there's multiple people attacking it. They're not going to kill it, because the weapons they have aren't magical, but they're still going to hurt it. And that's the thing that you, you, you gotta... You, I have to point out sometimes. A werewolf... You got silver bullets, right? Silver bullets is what kills a werewolf. If you stab it in the stomach with a fork, it's still going to hurt. 
It's not going to kill it. It's probably going to heal. But it still feels like a fork in the stomach to a, a werewolf, just like it does a regular person. You know, people are like, oh, you couldn't hurt it. No, you can hurt it. You can't harm it. And there's a difference. You get, you get stabbed 40 times in five minutes. It may not kill you, but man, that doesn't feel good. You're going to want that to stop. You run away. Um, and that's, that's something I do with, I, I've stressed very much in Dungeons & Dragons. Okay, we're all going to attack this monster that can only be harmed by a plus four weapon. Okay, you're never going to kill this. But by God, you can inflict it a bunch of pain with what you do have. You know, unless it's got a, some type of protective skin or something around it that your blades literally can't get through unless they're magical. There's an exception, of course. But for the average person, yeah, I have to be silver to kill me. But a regular iron sword through my stomach is still not going to feel good. So as people are hacking at this panther with swords and uh, picks and pickaxes and such, it eventually takes off and just leaves, run, starts running out of town. It can't get to the mine. There's too many people. It decides it's better off uh, fearing Lanzer than it is staying here and getting stabbed a hundred times. So whichever one was out there takes off. Michael's helping take back the town. But after they, find, after they get down Giacomo and the, this room is mostly empty and the battle's moved out into the street, they know their work is not done and they go charging down the one other tunnel that they know what's down there and that's where Lancer is. When they arrive in this room, they find that there are... It's very, very posh. It's not like what you'd find in a mine. Big, comfy... Pillows made as a bed. There's a nice desk in there. You know what I mean? Dining tables with nice dishes on it. Lanzer's living well. It's one big room, but, you know, it's a fancy-looking room. In a small cage on the end of the room, they can see what it looks like. A little girl. Maybe eight or nine years old. She looks a little dusty and dirty, but she looks pretty healthy in the wear. She's obviously being fed. But she's locked in a cage, and she looks scared. This, of course, immediately infuriates Dandy. Dandy does not like it when children are put in harm's way. For reasons. Lanzer, who's already standing there, well-armed, ready to go, heard the calamity coming, and could only assume if anyone got this far, it would have to be his own meddlesome son, who he had... Word that he was probably in the area. But he's surprised when Dandy comes walking in. With Blaze, of course. And he's like, he's like, well now, isn't this a surprise? After all these years, this is what you brought with you. <laughs> really, boy, I thought I taught you better than that. Danny goes, uh, Kender, not, not a this. You may not know. Your world might not have had Kenders, and I understand. Uh, Kender. Kender. I told him I'm a Kender. When I was like, he knows what a Kender is. She's like, oh, good. Kender. Good. We're here. <laughs> He's like, unless you brought it to annoy me to death, you are a bigger fool than you were when we fought last time. Which was not the time that the one eye. I mean, they fought several times. You keep escaping. And as I've told you, one way or another, you're going to join me or die. 
I can't have you out there and not being part of the fold. And again, remember, when you are inflicted with lycanthropy, uh, you will take on the mental mannerisms of that beast, uh, alignment-wise. So if you're a good person, you get bit by a werewolf or a were not, not always. There's exceptions to every rule, but majority of the time, depending on if you're a relatively weak person, you're going to convert to that mindset. It's going to affect your alignment. That can be reversed as well. There are some lycanthropes that are naturally good. Biting a thief or an evil person might legitimately bring their alignment more to the positive. It can happen. There's a reverse to everything. There's some witty banter going back and forth, but Lanzer, Lanzer's like, he goes, he goes, this time, boy, only one of us is leaving this cave alive. Dandy goes, two, I'm leaving. I mean, not now, but later. I'm going to leave, too. You may have forgotten about me. I know that I'm small, and you were talking to him. And oh, you're catching up. It's been a long time. And both of the, Lanzer rolls his eyes. Uh, one eye rolls his eye, and... She's like, I'm just saying, I'm going to leave too. Regardless of which one of you guys leaves, I'm leaving. I'm just saying. You may continue. Lanzer draws his blades and converts very quickly into a panther, An armed panther, And he's bigger than the other ones. He's a big dude. He's a pretty big, muscular, bulky dude. Um, and then that fight begins. This fight took a little bit longer. Dandy had no healing potions so she was uh, very early on using ranged. She has her hoop pack and she does have silver sling bullets. We've talked about that in the past. So she's using her silver sling bullets at a range whenever she can while one eye is in doing melee. Um, and it's easy to tell that Lanzer's better. I mean he's stronger, he's faster because he's a werepanther. Um, but he's also been doing this longer. I mean, he's got more training and such. He's been living that life even before one I had. So he's a little, if it wasn't for Dandy, Lanzer would win. But every so often, a, a silver bolt hits him or she'll run in in the middle of a thing and stab at him and slash. And so she's always trying to get behind him, which is hard to do. Uh, but one eye is specifically putting himself in situations where he'll take injuries to enable Dandy to get behind him. And it's one of those things where Lanzer asks, do I take the opening or not? And he's wanted to, to kill or infect his son for years. Mostly kill at this point. He's been a bigger, more thorn, thorn in the side. And so, attacking in, he takes those chances. At the same time, Dandy gets in behind him. And when Dandy gets behind someone, Dandy does a hell of damage. Um, it has been calculated that if Darsh rolls a natural 20 and rolls double damage and rolls all the maximum rolls he can do, he still does not, with his strength bonuses, as big as he is, he still doesn't do as much dan damage as Dandy does backstabbing with just a regular rolling max damage. Because the way Thieves skills worked in 2nd edition, at a certain level, you, you do double damage. Then triple, then quadruple, then quintuple. You are literally stabbing people where it hurts the most in a, in a situation where they're not able to defend themselves. You are going for the vitals, and you get better and better at it. And so Dandy's doing that, and I'm asking her in these situations, you're behind him, what are you going to do? 
I want to know what your what your actual attack is. I want you know. And a lot of times D and D, you don't give that specific. I'm like, what you're going to backstab him? What are you aiming for? You're going to get him in the back of the neck. We going and the first thing that she chose, she asked what he was wearing, and he was wearing mostly just like a, a, a girdle and a belt. He had like a cloth shirt on. Uh, he had no cape, but when he became the panther, the shirt rips out a little bit, hulks out a little bit, but he he has uh, like belt on and such. So. Uh, she said, she asked me if he's left-handed or right-handed. And I said, he is right-handed. She goes, I want to get him under the arm on the right-hand side. I want to aim for right under that there. That muscle, that section of muscle right on the back where your back of your arm meets it. And I was like, I did not know you were knowledgeable because I look into these things. But I was the young lady who, who, who said she wanted to do that. I was surprised. I'm like, that's a really good thing to do. And sure enough, she rolled it. She hit it. And that seriously hurt his ability to attack with that. You get that's a that muscle group really makes it hard to swing and wield the primary weapon. So it made it harder for him to now attack. That leveled the play playing field a bit for one eye. It took a while before she was able to get in and do it again. And this time I was like, okay. She's like, I'm I'm behind, I'm rolling it. I'm like, you successfully make it behind him. Where are you going to attack? And he has a chance to, to dodge it. I have my just in case he knows she's there, but he's, he's taking the, the feint on, on one eye. And this time she goes, I'm going to hamstring him. I'm like, okay. If you're not sure what I'm familiar with hamstring is, there is a muscle on the back of your leg below your knee. It's the back of your leg. It's a hamstring. It's a muscle. If you cut that, you don't get to walk anymore. <laughs> if you cut it deep enough and you sever that muscle, you're going to lose the ability to control the, below your knee. And a lot of times you'll see that in uh, fights and such, in movies and such, when somebody gets that slash in the back of the leg. That's why it's called hamstringing someone. If you hamstring someone, you are literally cutting that muscle, and at that point, they can't stand on that leg anymore. Dandy has a silver dagger, so her hamstring's going to stay a hamstring. It's not going to heal up with his healing factor like it would some other things. And so Danny pulls it off, and she rolled really good, and just guts the back of his right leg. So now his right arm and his right leg are both right arm, and right now he's almost down on his knee. And like a cat, he's not out. He's he falls down to almost all fours. He lets go of his sword at that point and starts attacking like an animal. And after several successful attacks on both One Eye and Dandy, they didn't see what he was doing. I was drawing it out on the dry erase board, right? I have that. I have, here's the cave. He attacks you this direction. They dodge this direction. They're, he's pushing them around the room. And as he does, when he rears up to attack, instead, he turns and flees. And he'd done it where he'd worked them around so that the cave entrance was behind him. And attack, they faint back. He turns and bolts out. Now, he's not going as fast as he normally would, but he's still pretty strong, and that one foot's down, but he's running basically three-footed. If you've ever seen a three-legged cat or dog, you'll know that, well, it takes a little bit of getting used to. They can still move pretty well. Someone like this, he's more intelligent. He's going to know how to move it a little bit easier. Still going to slow him down. Dandy and One-Eye immediately give chase. They can't risk him getting away again. And Luckily, as they they get to the to the end of that tunnel and they they see that he's stopped and standing at the end of it is Michael with Menandra. 
you know, given a you can you shall not pass kind of moment, right? And Lancer just dives at Michael, and Michael starts stabbing back with, with that, and Menandra is strong, and does some damage with stuff. So now he's stuck in between. we got Dandy in one eye on one side of the tunnel, Michael on the other, he's pinned in the middle. And it doesn't take too long before finally they just start whittling him down to the point that he falls down to both hands and legs. And he's like, and he, he, he leans up, and he starts to give this you understand, I was just doing it for us kind of thing. It's not too late. There could be a cure. And he's like sitting there going, Duh. and like in that moment, I was waiting for Lanzer to, you know, he's giving his big speech of why Sun shouldn't, and I was going to have, was going to have one eye say, no, this has been too long. There's no saving, blah, 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 kind of thing. <laughs> and, and in that moment, he's like, no. And Dandy goes, I step forward and I slit his throat. And I'm like, excuse me? She goes, yeah, I'm going to step forward and I'm going to stab him in the throat with my silver knife. I'm like, okay, roll it. And of course she does. And he's like, there's a way. And just, <laughs> and he's gurgling, falls to the ground and such. And he takes a moment to die. I was very rolling around gurgling noises out of it. And both Michael and one eye are looking at her like shocked. And she's like, I don't like people that hurt kids. I'm going to go help that little girl. And just turns and walks back down the tunnel as Lanzer's on the ground gurgling, trying to hold his own. Just just leaves him to die. And Michael and Mara, ooh, ooh. And literally he dies in front of them. Well, Dandy goes back. She couldn't find the key, but that lock was nothing to Dandy. Had that thing packed, uh, picked in two seconds flat and gets that little girl. Who's same size, if not just a little bit smaller than Dandy. And there she holds the little girl's hand and the little girl comes with her, and she doesn't really say anything, and Danny can tell she's scared. It's like, it's okay, you come with me. And as they're coming up the hallway, they see Lanzer on the ground, finally dead. And the little girl screams, and Danny hides her eyes, goes, come on, we're okay, and works her around. Michael and, and Lanzer are like, we'll, we'll stay here and take care of this. She goes, yeah, please do, please do. I'm getting this little girl out of here. And she gets out, and she takes her out of the mine, and she's trying to find the girl's parents, right? Parents or somebody, sibling, someone that she can find out. And someone yells, Lydia! And the little girl perks up and goes, Daddy? And Danny's like, ah, finally! And who comes running but the mayor, Sinestro Third, comes up and grabs the little girl and he's got tears running down his face and starts thanking Dandy so much for saving his girl. Danny's like... Damn it. <laughs> You're welcome. And it turns around and goes back to find Michael. But the whole time, she, she she fought. Every time I tried to put it on one path, she goes, nope. He's the villain. You wouldn't have named him Sinestro if he wasn't a villain. She was incorrect. The mayor was being completely controlled because maybe you'll remember that one point early on when they snuck into his house they came into a bedroom that looked like it hadn't been used for a while one clue that blew completely over their head they did not remember that at all during that section of the adventure um, I didn't know if any of you guys did maybe you would in the storytelling it was much closer together in the actual game playing there was a lot more time spaced out so it was time for them to forget it more so I, I forgave that, but they did not pick up on that at all. The town basically has run off or killed everyone who was uh, in league with him. Uh, the other uh, Gilhuli 
is the one of the ones that ran away. And then no whatever happened. No one knows what happened to Mayor's, the guy that was working with the mayor. Uh, the mayor lets it known that that was who was overseeing him. Lanzer was sending messages of what he wanted done because he was ruling through the mayor. The mayor didn't have any choice. And so uh, Gondo disappeared the same night. But the mayor does say he believes he was a were-panther as well. So there's two panthers out there that escaped. Um, but Lanzer and the other ones died. You remember the bedroom? There you go. That makes me happy, Ashley. I try not, you know, I try not to... Sometimes when there's clues, I have to make the clue there. But at the same time, I have to try not to make it too obvious. But yes. Sinestro III. That made me so happy. Uh, his name was Camberbrook Sinestro III. And, and I named him that way just so he sounded like the villain. And I'll be danged how well that worked. That never worked again, I will tell you. In any adventure I've ever done, they have, they've always been careful to not let the name trick them. That was the one time I pulled it off. And of course, the first time I really tried uh, pulling it off, uh, it, that, that burnt that bridge, and they never let me get away with that again. So, lesson learned, but it was still fun. This all happened at night. By mid, by the end of the morning, the town has been basically liberated. People are very happy. The mayor has his little girl back. And everyone is happy that Dandy and Michael and this unnamed stranger with the eye patch was able to save them. It does not take long for Dandy and Michael and One Eye to leave. They say, you're welcome. We have places to go. They want to get out of there as soon as they can. Because A, there's two more out there. And looking through the letters and such and things they found in Lanzer's room, it appears that he was going to be making weapons and armor and supplying them to a group of cat-worshipping people that were planning eventually an attack on... I should say it. These are weapons that were being made for the thieves' guilds that were being run by... Lanzer and the, his thief guild section of the town uh, were basically Pandora worshippers, much like you'd expect a panther to be, right? So, all comes back to Pandora again and again, doesn't it? So they start making their way back to Paxwell. It takes, I just had a day or so for them to get back to Paxwell. They didn't really get any loot out of that quest, but uh, they were okay with that. There was a little bit of loot, but I, I don't remember anything. Nothing important that they had to remember. Um... But as they, as they return back to, let's see, where was I? There it is. Okay. Some of these things are out of order. I've got I to do them in the right order. Uh, as they head back to that section, to Paxiwal, um, Galen, oh, no, sorry, Galen, Galen One-Eye, is the name that he goes by. Um, but he you know, kind of does that. He goes, he thanks them a lot for that. And they're like, he goes, he goes, you know, Lanzer Pathwarden died back in those mines. And as far as I'm concerned, so did Blaze. Uh, Galen One Eye walked out victorious. And now I'm going to take back my city. He goes, without my father's funding, uh, if I can get enough organized, I think that it'll take time. Uh, but I think the city's going to become mine again. In fact, I know it is. And Danny's like, yay, try not to hurt any innocent people. And he goes, I promise, I'll try not to hurt any innocent people. Then he goes, that's all I ask. 
It's all I ever ask. No hurting kids. Because I don't hurt any kids. But he gets serious for a moment and he says, really, I mean it though, the both of you. You've helped me here in ways that uh, I can't quite describe. This meant a lot to me and I owe you. The day comes you need me for something. The day comes you need my help. I'll be here. You know what? You, you find me. I will be here. And if it's with my ability to do, I will, I will give it to you. And they appreciate that and they say thank you. And as they see packs of walls, uh, the walls of Paxawal in the distance as they're walking down this road. Uh, Galen bids them farewell and heads off. He's going to come into the city a different direction. He doesn't want to be seen walking in the main gates because there are enough people that know of Galen One-Eye, the uh, leader of the old Thieves Guild. He's going to have to be a little bit sneakier coming in. Dandy and Michael, on the other hand, have free reign. And they make their way back into the town because they are going to have to have some questions for the mage tower and maybe the clerics because Dandy's had some troubling dreams. In fact, she had a really bad dream seven days ago. Artemis gets back to Serenity. It's back before Mercy is. And she arrives in time to find out that the other contingent of people that she'd sent north found the toy maker and on the road. He was actually on his way back. They ran into him within almost hours of leaving the town and did every testing on the could. He's perfectly fine. He had literally been invited to deliver some a specialty gift, I think I said for it was like a wedding or childbearing or something. And he had gone north to deliver that. Um, that's why he left early and had no idea all this was going on while he was gone that people were looking for him. Uh, but everybody was able, you know, Miasha there and her spells, they were able to verify that he was okay. He was not a bad dude or any of that stuff. So he's allowed to go on his way and they headed back to Serenity. So they actually were heading back to Serenity before Artemis was. So by the time Artemis returns, the other contention is already there. So she goes back into the temple to find out from Miyasha, of course, what has happened. And when she gets in there, she's happy to see that Miyasha's chatting with Kelvin. You remember Kelvin? Little cleric I said earlier on had gone on uh, a little bit of a trip uh, to visit the Kender town and had asked Miyasha to look after his lucky nuts. <laughs> and uh, he was home, and uh, he's hearing all these stories, and he's like, oh my god, I can't believe this happened. Whoa, that's horrible, I can't believe this. Pestilence, that's the bad guys, we don't like them. Because he's also, of, of his cleric, of, he's opposite of pestilence and such as well. So um, his, his goddess is the direct opposite of plague and disease, as well as healing. It's, it's a weird combo. But yeah, he's not happy about that at all. So they're sitting there kind of chatting and, and they're discussing what's going on. Miyasha's like, yeah, he was good. Everything was off him. Uh, Seamus and Schneider got us back here pretty quick. Uh, we were able to, I was, she goes, I was, I was tired, but I wanted to, you know, I was going to stay up and make sure everything was going well because with both of them gone and Kelvin gone, Lucas has been running, but Lucas is excited to have her back. And of course, she's giddy to see her baby. She immediately goes up to the room and she sees the kid. Um... And spends time with some Seraph while hearing all these stories. Uh, Draven had returned earlier that day as well to find out everybody was gone and not knowing what was happening. And he was hanging out there looking after Seraph as well. So when Artemis returns, he, she's happy to find Draven at the temple as well. So they're all happy, happy, happy. And they're kind of hanging out there just chilling on the couch. 
me see. What did I miss? Make sure I didn't miss anything here. There it is. Um, so they're kind of doing that. Baby's fine. Everybody's good. No issues. As near the end of the evening, uh, there's a knock on the door, and Lucas opens it, and uh, one of his loyal Templars comes in uh, with one of the Knights of the Light. Well, Artemis probably knows him from seeing him. No, not important enough to have a name, but important enough that she remember he was on the trip with her. Um, and he comes to advise that two of the Knights of the Light have fallen gravely ill this evening. Sir Snyder and Sir uh, Fabian uh, both became incredibly ill very, very quickly and together at the same time. Um, Sir Dante has basically quarantined them to a tent um, and not allowing anyone near. Artis and Miyashi are like, hmm, this isn't good. You know what I mean? Maybe what? He goes, yes, they've fallen incredibly ill. Illness, vomiting, fever, sweats, fainting, both of them. They did all, both at the same time. Um, and the knights have, at, have sent message to see if Artemis will please come. Artemis is like, well, of course. I'm tired and it ran all day, but it doesn't matter. This is, if there is this, the last thing we want is plague marching across the temple, yes. Miyasha and everybody's like, we'll go. Miyasha's, and he's like, no, Miyasha, you stay here. Draven, you stay here and watch the kid. This is the one thing I can do. Lucas is like, well, I'm coming. And she's like, that's fine, Lucas. Draven's with the baby. You can come with me. And Draven's like, okay. I mean, we're, we're barely going off temple grounds. It's just out in the city of Serenity itself. They're just camped right on the edge of it. She's like, okay, that's, that's not bad. It's Templars will go, everything. And then uh, Kelvin says, I'm going to go too. He goes, because if it, if it is more trouble from them evil clerics out there, by God, I've got my lucky nuts, and I'm going to take care of it for you. Hermes is like, yes, Kelvin, please. Because Kelvin's no slouch. He's a relatively high level. He's actually a pretty high level. He's actually higher level than Miyashi is. He's a pretty high level of his thing. He's just a little goofier. But when time comes down to it, he can, he can knock some heads. Uh, so Lucas and, several, and a bunch of Templars escort uh, Artemis and um, Kelvin in there. Um, Weston also comes. I should say that. No, I'm sorry, not Weston. Weston did not come in this situation. So, when they arrive, as a, sure enough, the, the, the tent is a good distance away from everybody else. They set it outside of the camp. They've got the sick in there. Um, there are, the two guards that help them in there are on guard of the area with Dante, but they're not letting anybody, because those two already helped them. Like, we're not letting anybody else in. We didn't know if it was something that the other people could catch. I didn't want to take chances. Dante, that's what Dante tells them. And they're like, okay, no, that makes sense. And Artemis... Checks and checks him, and Dante's fine. Goes, you're not ill, you're good. Checks the other two guards that had helped carry them in. They're fine as well. She's like, okay, stay here. I'm going to step inside. Lucas, guard the tent. Don't let anybody else in. Lucas is like, that I can do. Kelvin, Kelvin goes in with her. Because, again, Kelvin, useful in this situation. Because of his stuff. You know what I mean? If his cleric, again, if it's something along those lines. Um, so they go into the tent... And let's see. So Dante and Lucas are going to stand outside. The clerics go inside. Templars wait outside and are going to surround the tent as well to make sure, in case there are any more evil people out there, that they don't sneak in. Uh, let's see. So Artemis and Kelvin step into the tent. 
It's very dark inside, as you would expect. There's not a lot of light. If you don't know this, when people get really sick, they get light sensitive. So there's just a small candle on a table near the back. So there's dark glow, and there's two beds, of course, with the, with the big one. So they work, work, walk in. They're, Artemis goes first. Kelvin goes second. And they've barely taken a couple of steps in before Kelvin cries out in pain. Artemis spins quickly, just fast enough to see Snyder rip the knife out of Kelvin's chest where he stabbed him. Artemis raises her hand to cast a spell, but Snyder punches her square in the face and she stumbles backwards. This noise attracts the attention of outside and Lucas and Dante come running in, almost tripping over the potentially dead but very seriously injured Kelvin lying on the ground only in time to see Snyder standing there, this time with a blade to Artemis's throat. Now, I don't know if anybody picked up on that or not, but I have been very careful this entire time to make sure that anywhere Weston was, Snyder was not. And no matter what anybody was doing in any situation, Snyder was never within 50 feet of Weston. Lucas has his sword out and is ready to start chopping some heads off. Dante draws as well. Dante's more confused. It's nighttime, so it's no light coming in from outside, but the candle tipped over onto the ground they can barely see. Enough of silhouette of him where they can see that on Snyder's face are boils and blisters and such on the back of his hands as well, where he's holding the knife to Artemis's throat. And he's like, whisper even the beginning of a spell, and you'll never speak again. He's got it right up against her throat. Artemis is not a big fan of that situation. It happens to Artemis a lot, you find in these adventures. We're going to run a little over tonight as well, by the way. Sorry about that. We're probably going to run till closer to 11, so hopefully that's not too bad for anybody. Um, Dante's like, why? Snyder says, tells them, he goes, my lord demanded the death of two people. Two people. That's all he asked us for. Everyone else was a bonus. Kill the, clen the little Kender cleric and this lady right here. Two people thwarting the Lord's plans more often than they would think. Spreading the diseases and such was to get them away, to get them out to where we could take care of it. And then you brought that filthy paladin. And he just mucked up all the works. Any opportunity we had to try to take care of this, he was in the way. And so I had to let you kill the others. I had to let you take them down so I could finally get you away from him. I have to say I was pleasantly surprised when you brought the little Kender with you. You brought, delivered both of them to me in one shot. How lucky can I be? My great lord looks down on me and smiles today. 
Because even if I die, even if you all find a way to take me, I will have completed my goal and will be rewarded greatly. Artemis tries to say something, but as soon as she goes to speak, the knife, she can actually feel it cut in a little bit. There's like a little bit of blood coming on the knife. And Lucas just looks ready to slay, but he knows he can't get there quick enough. The knife will slit. This is, he is still standing across from a high-ranked Knight of the Light. That Knight of the he's still trained in combat. He was actually the head of the coven. He's the one that started all this, knowing they were coming this direction, got it all started. He was happy to make sure that they knew that Mercy was here once he learned all of it in a plan to get these guys here so they could deal with us. Artemis feels something rub against her leg. It's an odd feeling, just for a moment. Almost like a cat's tail. She doesn't dare to make a move. While this is going on, Snyder's gloating about how foolish everyone was. Foolish Dante and Sir Edward were, not knowing that over the last several years, every time the weather got cold and people got sick and more nights than normal seemed to be passing, it was his handiwork. And every time they were sent out to help a village in a town, before they left, he made sure somebody was infected spreading disease and plague across the land, all under the guise as a knight of the light, someone welcome in nearly every town. For just a second, Artemis is shocked. She felt something rub against her lower back, almost her butt. And for just a second, she starts to think, did Snyder just grab my butt? I know this sounds an odd moment for that, but that was the thought. And then she realizes, no, that's not possible. He's got one arm around my waist and one arm around my neck. She can't speak, but she doesn't understand what that was. Lucas is looking for his moment. Artemis sees that. He's looking for a moment to try to rush in. Lucas is fast, even as an older guy. But he just can't find a way to safely do it without harming Artemis. And there's no other clerics nearby that if Artemis gets hurt seriously, this guy slits her throat. There's nobody near her. Miyasha might be able to heal her, but he doesn't know if she'd get here in time. He f- just feels trapped. He doesn't know what to do. Dante ends up yelling, Enough! Your gloating sickens me, and I, s- I promise you will not see the morning's light. Snyder goes, I left the light long ago, brother. And I never expected to see it again. And he laughs as he brings his knife across. Well, that's what he was going to do. But he's trying to move his arm. And you can see he's surprised. He can't move. And he's frustrated. He tries to move his other arm. And he's stuck. And Artemis is waiting why isn't this happening? And then she slowly feels his arm come off and being pulled away. In this moment, Snyder finally shocked, not saying anything, not understanding. It's the quietest the, quietest the tent has been in a few moments. And that's when everybody hears the chanting. Their eyes look down, see little Kelvin 
facing up, staring at the both of them, his lips moving very quietly, his fingers stuck into the earth. The plants and vines that have been wrapping around Snyder's legs, then his body, up and around his arms, have completely gone tight and are keeping him from moving in any direction other than what Kelvin wants them to go. And Kelvin uses the vines to pull his arms apart. Artemis rushes forward and Lucas grabs her. Snyder's furious. He's being held back by these leaves from this little little thing on the ground. There's no way it's going to stop him. He's going to kill him instead. Snyder opens his mouth, obviously about to cast a spell, but before the words can even begin to start coming out, a vine quickly comes out of his shirt into his mouth and starts forcing itself down, and he starts coughing and choking as the vine continues to push its way down his throat. The chanting stops, and they hear Kelvin whisper, You shall blight this land no more. And the vines begin to contract his arms. And the vines start spreading around him even more. The vines are wrapping around his body, thicker and thicker. Less of him can be seen. They're wrapping around where it's all you can see are an odd finger, a little bit of his eyes are sticking out. He's in a cocoon of vines. From the earth we come, and to the earth we shall return. With the last strength, Kelvin pulls his fingers out of the earth and clenches his fist, and the vines constrict. And a sickening, cracking, crushing noise is heard, with the muffled murmurs of pain as red fluid just starts to leak from in between the different vines. Tighter and tighter and then slowly begins to get pulled into the ground, yanked as it, last of its movement as it's dragged below the dirt. Everyone doesn't know what to do. They don't they look down at Kelvin, and he looks up at Artemis and smiles and said, See? Lucky nuts! And passes out. Mercy returns later returns by the next morning. Boy, did she get filled in on a lot of information. Kelvin is healing. Artemis managed to heal the wound in his chest. Enough to get him back to the temple where they could do some more important healing. He's resting now. Draven upset, of course. He couldn't be uh, Lucas upset. All the people that were there to try to, to protect Artemis, it was little Kelvin that did the best job. And I'll tell you, from that point on, Miasha gave him a little bit less crap. A little bit less crap. About being a kender and being playful. And he was allowed to play with the baby anytime he wanted to. Artemis... Mercy gets filled on everything that's happened in Moonbrook, Oakleaf. Now here, Sir Edward hears about Snyder. Dante's there while this is going, hearing the story, and Dante's like, I confirm all of it. It's 100% true. 
And Edward just nothing but apologetic. And Mercy's like, you didn't know. We understand. There's no way you could have known. But all of this happens. And everybody is exhausted. So much has gone on the past week. All that anybody really wants is a good night's rest. And hopefully they'll get one tonight. It's been seven days since their last nightmare. And at this point, there's concerns it could happen again. So Artemis and Mercy, Mercy decides to stay at the temple that night. Ulrich also, hearing about everything that was going on in the border, they send more guards out to the border. Now they got to start prepping for Ormond to be an issue. All that's going on. Mercy is going to spend the night at the temple with Artemis. And she's got a couch in her room. She can crash in there. Draven will be staying there as well because now he's concerned about these nightmares. And they brought in all the clerics they could to kind of watch to see if anything does try to inspell them to try and stop it if they can. The two women are kind of resting there. Talking, they're visible to each other. One laying on the bed, one laying on the couch in the room. Draven's sitting in the room with them, and uh, so is uh, Ulrich at this point. And they're kind of just chatting. Lucas is outside the room. Uh, the baby's asleep in his crib. And it almost immediately hits them. They feel themselves get lightheaded, almost as in a heavy intoxication, which Artemis has never really had, but Mercy's way more used to. Um, but the heavy intoxication hits them, and they both realize that once again they're losing consciousness, and they're looking at each other. Because these are the first of, of the group that's really had a chance to talk to each other and verify, hey, I've been having these nightmares. They've never verified it to the point. This morning was the first time they did that, and that's why they're prepping for them, and sure enough, they pass out. In their room in Paxilwald. Michael holds Dandy's hand as she starts to get weaker. And he's scared, but he knows he can't, he doesn't know what else to do as she passes out. Darsh, again also recognizing the seventh day, has Garrig and Jorn both in his room. Uh, Rokar and Dorham are basically handling the ship. At this point, Darsh is like, Garrig, if you remember, is the Minotaur who's a cleric of war. Oversees it. They've also got, he's also had a sea mage in there. I forgot I've, to mention him, but he has a sea mage, obviously. He's had a smage for a while. So the smage is there because he wasn't aware of it last time. See if he can sense what's going on. But Darsh is like, Darsh, when starts getting, Darsh goes, Oh, here it comes. And they're like, Oh, okay. And everybody starts prepping. And sure enough, Darsh is out a moment later as well. And they all go to sleep. But the roar of the crowd catches them by surprise, the sound wave nearly bowling them over. They're on their feet. They're walking. They've been walking for a while now. They know that, but they don't remember when they started. But the doors before them open. And stepping into the arena, they see the sky is a swirling purple color with no sun. The air is old and stagnant. The crowd is made up of all races. Humans, minotaur, elves, dwarves, gnomes. 
There are goblins, gnolls, kobolds, bugbears, and every race you've ever encountered. All of them are dark, almost shadows. They scream for combat, and they scream for blood. On the far side of the arena are four large doors. Above the center doors is a booth where sits a dark shadow. You are unable to see the person's features, only his winged demonic shape. Welcome again, says the shadowy figure. His voice is barely a whisper, yet you can hear it clearly. Your continued resistance is futile. Give it to me, and I shall let you leave in peace. Just give it to me, and this will all be over. Now, looking side to side, they can see Darsh, Artemis, Mercy, Dandy. They're all there. None of their friends, none of their allies. Here, baby. Move the book. Just them. And they don't know what it is that he wants, but he knows... They all know that they can't let him have it. It's important. Very important. It's imperative that they not give whatever it is he wants, though they don't know what it is. They speak as such. It doesn't matter what you want. We're never going to give it to you. And this is all for nothing. You waste all of our times. They had some bravado. They said some... You know, basically, you're a turd. We're not going to, you know, be a jerk. We're not going to be, you're not going to get it. So why are you messing with us? Who are you? All that kind of stuff. But he answers none of their questions and only laughs. A little bit, but irritatedly. So be it then, says the shadowy figure, obviously frustrated. Let us see what you say. Let your nightmares come true. All four doors, or all four sets of doors open themselves, revealing a black hole that you cannot see into. You stare at those holes filled with dread. You can sense something moving towards you from within. From the door farthest from the left steps two figures. Darsh can only growl in anger at them. Seeing them, Darsh immediately recognizes. Craig, the Minotaur, the assassin he fought back, and the large creature next to it, the huge Manator thing that he had to fight in the arena way back when they were trying to, uh, where he's trying to win his, his name, his nobility. Things that Darsh, someone who really doesn't have a lot of fear, those are the fights he worries. Now he doesn't so much as fear as despise what, what they did and what they caused. From the door farthest to the right steps two more figures. Mercy knows these men all too well. On the left stands Nicholas Dagadin, commander of the Twelfth. And beside him stands Lothar of the Nine, cleric of Pandora and head interrogator for Oromon. From the middle left steps two figures. Dandy was never able to forget that drow elf's face. She never knew his name, but the images of what he did to that Kender village all those years ago still haunted her. But even more, her heart sank as she saw the second large figure step out. 
She loved Michael with all of her heart, but seeing him again merged with the death gem was almost more than she could bear. Artemis didn't need to look at who stepped out of the last door. Only two men have ever haunted her dreams, and she could feel the eyes of the man in the hat burning through her as he stood there. But next to him stood the most evil being she'd ever encountered. He had taken everything from her, and his legacy followed her still. Daedalus, the vampire, stood there, a smile on his face. Ha ha ha, now I see what you fear, says the shadowy figure. Let us see how you face them. Hmm. Hmm. I'm torn whether we should finish the dream or if I should stop here and finish it next week. I'm torn. What do you guys think? Have any preference? Is that enough for tonight or should I finish the dream tonight before we end? I will allow a moment for the leg as I drink my chalky milk. That's some good chalky milk. I drink Kroger brand chocolate milk, and it's delicious. In case you're wondering out there, favorite drink? Chocolate milk. Ah, got some on my book. Okay. Let's see. Let's see, flip the coin here. What are we going to do here? Um, well. Nah, let's go ahead and finish it. From each of the doors, two of their... Now is good. Finish it now, please. I got a two for there. Okay, well, I can do that then. You know me. I hate to leave you on a cliffhanger. Um, from each of the door came a pair of figures, specifically feared or hated by one of our heroes. Of each pair, one of them now walks forward to face them. In this group is... The Manator, the big thing, the drow to fight, the Darshad fight, Nicholas Dagadon, the Drow, and the Man in the Hat. And our heroes step forward to face them. Oh, it's okay, you're a few seconds behind. I know there's a bit of lag there. It's okay. <laughs> our heroes step forward to face them. All their weapons are there, all the gear they're used to having. The crowd's roars even more deafening than they were before. And they step forward to fight that before it. Just give me some patches. Give me some pets to patches while I'm hanging out with you guys. Isn't that right, sweetie? So. The four figures charge at them. And I'll be honest, our four heroes charge forward a bit as well. Interestingly enough, you got something in your eye, baby. There we go, I got it. Even Artemis feels herself moving forward. Not happy staying in the back. The two lines enter into skirmish. The Manator's huge. It's very big. But it's not as fast. Of the two. And if you were to say it, each of the things that are attacking them at this point, um, probably the potentially the junior of the two villains. You know what I'm saying? Um, the Mantor, not as not as bad as Craig. Uh, Nicholas, not as bad as Lothar. Uh, the Drow, 
Not as bad as evil Michael. The man in the hat who haunts her right now, he's definitely a fear of the now and the future, but she knows Daedalus more. Daedalus was a big... So Daedalus is the, the more powerful of the two because she doesn't actually know what the man in the hat is capable of at this point. But as he rushes forward, she doesn't see him with any weapon. She didn't remember any weapon on him when she saw him in her room months of those months ago. So she doesn't know what he wields. The Manator is racing forward just with its own hands and horns and attacking. Um, the Drow has a sword. They saw him with a sword, so he would pull out his long sword. And Nicholas, of course, has his big old polearm axe thing. They go into battle. Um, Artemis, of course, not enough to run in and try to fight the man in the hat with her quarterstaff, uh, is capable enough of standing back and trying to cast what few offensive spells that she have. She has a wand of magic missiles. It's something she picked up earlier. I believe Tobias had given it to her. Uh, and that's something she used on occasion. So she starts whipping her magic missiles, which are guaranteed to hit, starts popping a few of those at the man of the hat. Who doesn't draw a weapon, just continues to try to come at her. But Mercy, who's trying to fight Nicholas, is also still trying to keep Artemis behind her. Nicholas, of course, bragging how he can't wait to, you know, kill her and stuff. They don't say a whole lot, these four, but they come forward. The drow just smiles, and Dandy just hates him. And Dandy just, who packs it in? She's in there. She's not even hesitating. She's jumping in for the fight. Several rounds of combat happen. And our heroes are very, very concerned to find that nothing they're doing is hurting the people they're fighting. We talked about difference between hurting and killing earlier, but even if they're stabbing or chopping the things here, it doesn't even look like it's affecting them. In fact, some situations, the weapons just bounce off their skin. No matter what Darsh does to that Manator, he cannot get it to slow down. It's just barreling into him. Mercy's able to block Dagonin quite a bit. She's overall a better fighter, especially now without anybody else around and her fully armed. She does have all of her armor on now, even the, bro the stuff that was broken. It's all fine in the dream. And she's able to do it, and she's getting in more hits than he is, but he doesn't do anything. He just glances off them. This goes on for several rounds of combat. They appear to be having no effect at all. And it was Dandy who kind of found something out. Dandy's fighting the drow. She hates this drow. She wants to kill him. But she's also fighting next to Darsh, who's fighting this big old thing. And Darsh is her buddy. And so the young lady playing Darsh said, I'm going to instead, I'm going to give up my melee attack and I'm going to throw two daggers. I'm like, okay, she can throw two daggers. She's going to throw one at the drow and throw one at the manator. See if I can help Darsh out a little bit. Maybe get its attention, he can get a better hit in. Like, fair enough. The dagger she throws at the drow literally hits him and bounces off like it's nothing. But the dagger that hits the manator, that's very different. The dagger thunks right into the skin. The manator yells out in pain. The first real loud noise any of them have made. Mercy and Darsh see this. So Mercy 
ignores Dagadin and takes the chance she's going to take a hit and instead moves forward and swings at the man in the hat. And sure enough, striking him sends him knocked backwards. Like hard enough that he stumbles. He's got no weapon. He's just coming at her, you know, booga booga. It's in that round that they realize that they're not able to hurt the thing that they fear. But they can sure as hell hurt the other peoples. And that changes their whole base of attack. Now, they're only attacking the, each other's fears. Strangely enough, it's Dandy who comes running and yells Darsh. Darsh knows what that means. We've seen it before. We saw it when they were fighting the Dracolich. He drops, she jumps on his hands, and he tosses her high into the air, right on the back of that Manator. That's his attack. He took a big hit for that from the drow. But now Dandy's on the back of this Manator. It can't reach her, and she's just stabbing with daggers. It's trying to, it's like riding a bull. It literally was riding a bull. It's trying to buck her off and everything, and she's just holding on and stabbing and such, and just that. Darsh takes a big hit from the drow, but now he looks at this little drow in front of him that he knows Dandy hates, and he's got a big sword and a shield, and he's like, mm -hmm, we're going to take care of this. Mercy just starts going after the man in the hat. Dagadon, who's still trying to go at Mercy, is now having to deal with Artemis, who oddly enough, is walking, who ran up and hit him with the quarterstaff and did the type of damage you'd expect from Darsh. Hitting him with that quarterstaff literally busts his face open. He's like, like it was hit with a sharp sword. And Artemis realized in that moment, I can hurt things. And literally, which is normally against what she stands for, right? Of course. But she just starts swinging that. She pulls her whip out and starts using that. And she's able to hit and hurt anybody quite effectively, except for the man in the hat. Now, the other four things are still standing at back at their door. They're not doing anything. They're waiting. It takes a few rounds of this, but Darsh is able to take out the drow first. Clearly. <laughs> That's, well, the, well, the drow is fast, Darsh is angry. And then Darsh immediately turns, not to help Dandy, but to help Mercy, and charges barreling in, literally Minotaur charge. It's an ability with his boots, remember those? And just comes flying through and runs into both Nicholas and the man in the hat, barreling them over, sending him flying. Mercy and Artemis turn to the Manator. But Dandy's been stabbing, who's taking a lot of damage, but it's still a big thing. Now it's Darsh against the man in the hat and Nicholas. Well, Mercy and Artemis are, and Dandy are all beating down this Manator. With the three of them, it doesn't take long. The Manator hits the ground. Darsh takes a few hits in his combat, but he's big. <laughs> and he's shrugging off the Punches. The punches of the man in the hat are stronger than a regular punch. Definitely it's hitting him hard, but he's mostly hitting against a shield. It has no weapons, which is odd. You'd think it would have had some kind of weapon. But it's attacking, and Darsh literally, at one point, just completely squishes with his, with his fist. The man in the hat and the man in the hat crumples to the ground. You'd think he'd be unconscious, but there is no unconscious here. He starts to get up again. While Darsh is dealing with Dagonin, and he just stabs Dagonin right through the chest. And she specifically said, I spin it before I pull it out. <laughs> it was a, you know, vengeance thing for Mercy. At that point, Mercy comes stepping in and just brings her Morningstar and the man in the hat's head down and 
crushes his skull. And as all four of those bodies are laying on the ground, they slowly fade and disappear. They're a little winded. They're a little tired. They know things aren't done yet. Craig, Michael, Lomar, and Daedalus start walking forward. But unlike the first four, who really didn't say much of importance, these four each had something to say. Craig looks at Darcy and says, Soon, Fohammer, you will feel the wrath of those you've wronged. You will feel the loss my kin felt when you took my life. Michael looks at Danny and says, Come, my love, let us walk this world together forever. Your friends can join us, and we will rule this new world. Lomar says to Mercy, Do you remember my table, child? We spent many hours there together, you and I. Never have I heard such delicious screams. I'm greatly looking forward to next time. And Daedalus says to Artemis, It is good to see you again, sister. How is my nephew? I do look so forward to seeing him. Shouldn't be much longer now. I have great plans for him. And they move forward into combat. Well, our heroes are not fools this time. They quickly switch up. Start attacking each other's fears. Only to have no effect on them whatsoever. In the first and second round of combat, they realize what they're doing is doing nothing. And in this time, very quickly switch back, learning that they only can hurt their own. This is better and worse for some people. Darsh has taken Craig before. doesn't matter whether he's alive or dead or if it's a dream. Darsh has already decided he's, Craig's going to die again. Skilled, Craig is, but like in a sneaky way, not an honorable way. Dandy versus Michael. That's going to be a hard one. Going to be a hard one. Mercy versus Lothar. Wow, that's a spellcaster battle right there. Mercy's trying to fight someone who's casting clerical spells, and he's no slouch in combat himself. But Artemis has to fight Daedalus. She's the only one who can hurt him. That presents a problem. But feeling a bit more confident and the fact that she was able to do some actual damage the previous rounds, doesn't give up hope. And battle begins again, now with each person fighting their own fear. As I said, Darsh versus Craig wasn't that bad. There was a, Craig did some sneaky stuff. He had a dagger that was clearly some form of poison-tipped. Which, when stat when gets stabbed with it, Darsh immediately felt ill and it weakened him. So Darsh did less damage than normal. Um, but Darsh, even weaker, is still really strong for Minotaur. And at one point, uh, ends up dropping his weapon. Darsh rolled a one in this battle and dropped his weapon. And so Darsh did something that I hadn't seen him do in a long time. He used a Minotaur attack and literally attempted to gore with his... With his uh, with his one remaining horn, and was successful. 
just literally charged forward and stabbed him in the chest and using just his neck muscles and that one horn. And mentor horns are strong. They're not easy to break. Picks up Craig and flings him backwards. Craig's weapons go, and then they come hand to hand. And then when it just comes to fist to fist, even weakened state, Darsh just literally pummels Craig. Michael the Lich Lord. Remember, he was much larger in that form. He physically grew with the stone. She doesn't really know the secret to getting the stone off, but Dandy also knows this isn't real. She knows she's in a dream. Of all of them, she's the one who that makes more sense to. Because Dandy's dreams are way weirder than this. She knows this is not normal because there's no kittens, there haven't been any giant butterflies yet, and no giant butter dishes. She knows this has to be a not regular dream. And it's definitely not the really real world because no sky looks like that. So it's got to be a dream, but it's not a good dream. So if it's, not a, if it's not reality and it's not a good dream, it's a bad dream, but even in a bad dream, dreams don't live by the same rules. So that means that's not really the gem on Michael, which means that's not really Michael. And as soon as she realizes that, because they had to realize that, each round they were having to make a roll to realize whether or not they were in a dream or not. It's not something I mentioned earlier, because it got to the... They didn't know why they were rolling. They didn't know why they were rolling. But once they realized it, it had a difference. And Dandy rolled it first. And she's like, this is a dream. And if this is a dream, then that's not only Michael, which means I'm not hurt, grilling and killing. And that stone's not real. And at that point, she stopped worrying that much about defending herself. She literally went in and just balls the wall started attacking him without any type of resistance because she knew she wasn't fighting something real. And she started to really get the upper hand. Mercy, probably having the hardest out of all of them, uh, only because Lothar is a spellcaster. And while Mercy doesn't have any real ranged weapons on her, every time she tries to get close, Lothar casts some type of spell where he moves or he moves some, he reappears somewhere else or he's putting up ice walls in front of him. And he's, it's like, these are weird spells for that cleric to have, but she doesn't know what type of spells a cleric like that would have. So he's just doing all sorts of weird stuff. Mercy was the second one, though, to finally realize, truly realize it was a dream. But it was Artemis that, while fighting Daedalus, realized the secret to the dream. And she realized that the man in the hat didn't have a weapon because she never saw the man in the hat with a weapon. So if the dream is creating her nightmare, it's creating it from her memories. So if it only had... He had no weapon because she didn't. She never saw him with a weapon. That's why he was just running with punches. So that means what she needs to fight Daedalus uh, was either dandy with, you know, that uh, dandy all uh, menandred out, or she needed that bloody dagger. And in her hand was that bloody dagger. Hey, turtle, have a good one, sir. We're finishing up in just a minute as well. And attacking Daedalus, even though she's not good with a dagger, the da Daedalus almost scared of it. She begins literally doing serious damage with that bloody dagger, the crystal dagger with Draven's blood in it. The battle continued until eventually all four were vanquished. 
as they were. Everybody was pretty beaten down and worn out by that point, but sure enough, they did it. Artemis uh, casting some heals when she can, but mostly she was actually melee combat in this one, which was odd. They weren't getting heals, but she was doing damage. As the last fear falls to the ground, the crowd falls deadly silent and all goes still. Slowly, they all fade away till the stands are empty and only the shadowy figure remains. You continue to surprise me, he says. I'd not thought you'd be able to resist me this long. Still, we have all the time in the world and you can't hold me off forever. You will give me what I seek. The figure then fades away as well, leaving you alone in the arena. The door you entered is gone, and the four doors your fears entered from have been replaced by a single door. It is black, and it sparkles with starlight, much like the key on the ground before them. <coughs> Excuse me. Dandy picks up the key. Oh, no, sorry. Artemis picks up the key. And they walk towards the door. She's about to reach out and unlock that. When out of the corner of her eye, Dandy sees something flash blue. Looking over on the wall, she sees a small blue rune. That doesn't look like that's supposed to be there. She calls out to Artemis to stop. Who does? What's wrong? Look at this. Dandy walks over and looks at the blue rune. She looks at it and she's a little confused. She's never seen a rune like that before. But she knows a rune. Dandy's seen runes. Dandy's a smart girl. Why would it be here? She starts looking around and sure enough, after searching and prodding, Dandy finds a hidden door. It's buttoned directly beneath where the rune was. Pressing this, mechanism is behind the door clicks and it slides to the side and there is instead a door leading out to light. A light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. Dandy goes, let's go this way. Friends are like, okay. And they proceed down that tunnel. But as they go walking down that tunnel, they hear the scream of anger from the voice of the shadowy figure they heard moments ago. And then they all wake up. But we'll talk about that next week. So, uh, we were running right at three hours a day. Ran a little long. Sorry for that. I did want to kind of do the dream. I was in the, the, the fun of it, if you will. Hopefully you uh, guys liked this a little bit. I know it was a little bit more combat heavy this time uh, than some of our previous ones. But it seems now that we're starting to come to the resolution of some of our individual character stories. Maybe. But now this bigger lingering problem is kicking in. So we will deal a lot more with that next Thursday. But I would like to say thank you all for coming here in my story. If you're watching this uh, years down the road, thanks for checking it out. Or if you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, I definitely appreciate you checking that out there as well. If you had a good time and you enjoyed the story, please click the like button. But most importantly, hit subscribe if you haven't already so you can hang out with me on all my videos streams and stories again if you're checking this out on spotify or itunes if you want to give that a like or a follow or a, a rating or anything like that definitely be appreciated uh definitely trying to get more uh more activity on this podcast side of things uh 
Uh, but I had a really good time tonight, and I look forward to streaming again tomorrow. So tomorrow uh, at 10 a.m., we'll have a Skyrim stream for four hours. Then I have to go do the horrible job. And then I'm back tomorrow night at 9.30 p.m. till midnight for some more Sky Factory 3. Going to do some, some building for sure this time. Not all chickens. So we'll have some good stuff there. But again, thank you very much for coming. Special thank you, as always, to my members. Those of you who have an Only Draven Gaming membership on my YouTube channel, it's a great way to support the channel and still get yourself a little bit of stuff in return, like access to our Minecraft servers for members only, members only streams, and multiple other perks. Click the join button on my YouTube channel for more information. And go to my website, onlydraven.com. You'll find some info there, links to the podcast, audio versions, Spotify and iTunes, as well as all my videos and tutorials, the links to the videos of all of these. My ODG store gets you some ODG merch like this one or some Merge Worlds merch. Going to have some uh, some maybe different cuts coming out this month. Uh, but definitely check out the merch. See if there's something there you like. Follow me on the socials. Lots of fun stuff on the website, including my streaming schedule. So be sure to check that out. All right. And an extra special thank you again to my moderators for taking care of me better than I take care of myself. All right, everybody. Thank you so very much for coming. And we will all see you again very, very soon. Have a great day.